friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned to the MC Lars podcast. It is Monday, December 9th. This is episode 67. I just got back from Fandom Fest in Fort Myers, Florida, where I performed a bunch of selections from the Dewey Decibel System with Mega Ran. And today I am talking to Brian Mazzaferi of I Fight Dragons. Their new album, Canonize, is out today. They did it through Patreon, where they just charged all their fans for the album. Everyone could sign up and get the updates. And then when the album was out, they got to pay back all their recording bills. So that's a really creative and innovative way of doing it. It's a very long episode, so I'm going to keep the introduction short. But Brian has always been ahead of the curve. Great guy, great friend, great father, great songwriter, great collaborator. And it was really great to talk to him because I've always wanted to have him on the podcast. We recorded it at the Player Omega, which was the Warp Tour Gamer Festival I did in Los Angeles a few weeks ago. This week's episode is brought to you by the following Patreon Larsians, the new ones. Shout out to Andrew Davis, Jesse, and Marcy. Shout out to the old ones, Molly, Brandon, and Mitchell. Thank you all very much for your support and for making this podcast possible and for allowing me to keep putting out music. This Saturday, if any of you are up in New England, I'm playing at the Aura in Portland, Maine with Spose for his Pedank Christmas number six. And then on December 29th, playing with the legendary blues harmonica musician Charlie Musselwhite at the Oshman Family Jewish Community Center in Palo Alto. And then on the 31st, New Year's Eve, I'm playing First Night Monterey again. So a lot of shows coming up, a lot of interesting, different kind of shows. But let's get into it. This is my interview with Brian Mazzaferi. Check out their new album, Canonize. We're going to hear a selection from it at the end. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys listening. I, Brian, I appreciate you being on the episode. It was a great talk. I learned a lot about Magic the Gathering. All right, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, we are east of L.A. I'm here in the hotel room with my man, Brian Mazzaferi from I Fight Dragons. What up? Hi, Brian. Hi, Andrew. Hey, that's cool. I like that you couldn't call me my real name. It's uh, I like to call you that. You get the Andrew privilege. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's yeah, I feel I feel privileged. When people, I don't know if you if this bothers you, probably not, but people come up to me at, at shows and stuff and say, oh, what's up, Andrew? And if I don't know them, I'm always like, ugh. But mm. I know it's not like private. See, when people come up to me at shows and say, what up, Cuddles? If it's not you, I get angry at them. <laughs> cuddles. But you can call me that. Thank you. Thanks, Cuddles. <laughs> uh, we're here at Player Omega, and it's the inaugural like thing Warp Tour is doing, getting into like the competitive gaming world. Yeah. And it's the first day, and you guys came in today, and you guys came and saw my set, which was cool. You and Chad. It was dope. It was great to see you. It made me happy to see you guys out there. Oh, yeah. That's a blast. We toured last year, and I wanted to interview so badly for the podcast but you you'd lost your voice <laughs> i kept losing my voice it was actually so we i think we played like a week of shows right like eight shows and by the last one i've officially there were some songs where i could not hit the high notes and, and bill and packy had to sing with me <laughs> you couldn't but it's, it wasn't super obvious to the audience uh i hope not i thought i feel like that last show there were some moments but i made it through and i didn't like fully lose my voice until the, the end <laughs> oh baltimore yeah. Which was a great turnout. It was a blast. I mean, it's still a lot of fun. Then I went down and played DC by myself. Right. I rented a car. Which, and I wish we could have joined, but yeah, schedules or had us made, mean we had to end that a day before you. And you guys, yeah, it's interesting that we, our first tour we did, 2012, we talked about this a lot, 
Um, we were actually talking about earlier tonight. That was two whole months, right? Yeah, it was. We did the whole U.S. <laughs> it was kind of crazy. Oh my gosh! And and it was with the band Sky Fox was the yep. second, or were they first? Their first opener, and then I was second. Yeah, then us, and then y'all. And it was um after you had done Warp Tour the first summer. Yeah, warped. We did a Warp Tour in a van in 2012, which was its own experience. And then we went with you in the fall. They say bands that do Warp Tour in a van typically break up. And that did not happen for you we guys. We didn't break up somehow. Although I was just talking with Chad about it today. We we all have very few memories of that because of the sheer <laughs> amount of sleep deprivation. Right. Like it's, as a tour you were supposed to do in a bus. And so like lots of times you don't, there's no like hotel because you just have to drive. <laughs> it was, it was a, a life experience that summer for sure. Not props to you guys. That's like <laughs> real cred. That's like. That's and you did the whole tour. Oh yeah, and you were saving money. That was yeah, because we, we had just bought the van and we were trying to save money and all that fun stuff. The dragon wagon, is that what yeah, we called it? We did. Yeah, <laughs> you guys did this epic. Um, what was it like? People, well, you can describe it like uh, people who st- started supporting you from the beginning you, helped you buy your first van, right? Yeah, well, to help our do our first tour. Actually, that was when we were our first tour was opening for MC Chris, and yeah. we but we also you know needed to fund that and. Uh, in order to cover our costs, we sold a uh, hundred lifetime memberships to the band, which was like, you know, this was back in the day, internet music industry, people just making things up. You were a piece of that. And, uh, and yeah, that was one of our things that we tried was say, all right, a hundred people, hundred dollars each. We're just going to sell these and you get, we're going to every piece of music we release, we're going to email to digitally for free for the rest of uh, the band. And anytime we come to your town, We'll add you to the guest list, and you can come into our show uh, for free for life. Part of for life, lifetime membership, and it's still active. Yeah, we've got every show we've played. Just about somebody has said, like, "Oh, by the way, I'm emailing, and I'm on your list. Can you put me on the list?" Okay, sure. And we still, you know, every release, even as we did uh, canonize our our new album, it was mostly for Patreon backers. But when we did the digital release, I emailed it to all the lifetime members as well. So they have it. Yeah, and canonize. What's the official? digital release date is the whole album out or you've been doing uh, singles? no so we've been doing singles so yeah. the public release is december 9th oh this is so good timing yeah. for this interview yeah that's cool and so that's your fourth full length third, third full length yeah and we had two eps as well we uh self-released cool is just a number right um in 2009 and then we did uh welcome to the breakdown in 2010 as we were still working on kaboom but we were, it was taking longer than we thought, so we took a few songs that we were working on. And that and had the Back to Future cover? Yeah, <laughs> right. Power of Love. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we did that one because we had been playing it live and we just wanted to put it together. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, Kaboom was in 2012. And then that was the end of it. Or then the got off the label and, uh, and self-released or did Kickstarter for the near future, which was 2015. And then now Canonize. 2019 so they're getting farther and farther apart can and uh, so wait and what's what was project Ath- oh, yeah project atma that was the we sort of named the kickstarter because we didn't know what the album oh, was going to be called um, that was the the future the near future the near was future. the album that came out of project atma the kickstarter oh cool and what's interesting that had chicago on it right yeah the album that that album had the song chicago which was a song that you had you have a really great YouTube video talking about all the A&R's involvement in that song. <laughs> and you're in- interesting, you're a very interesting artist to talk to, like about, I love talking to you about life and everything, but your experience, because kind of like me, you straddle the old and new business models. Sure. And 
you've been on a major label and had all the the high budget videos and stuff <laughs> and then done it indie and like done it always done it in like really progressive interesting ways and thank I, you no I, it's cool it's I, I always admire that about you guys and i think that song chicago is a cool example so let's talk about that song briefly sure. well so it's a and i i it sort of tell some of the story in the youtube video i think but dur- so during the time when we were signed to atlantic uh, we were working on the new album, and, and I mentioned it took longer than we thought, but because part of that was, if you're on a major label, the stereotypical thing, which they tell you, and which was absolutely true for us, was the A&R, main A&R fo- or guy that was assigned to us was like, look, what we need, the only thing I care about is a no-brainer smash hit. So go write a song that when I hear the demo, I think this is a no-brainer smash hit, and we'll be good to go. Which, so just that yeah. and that's so subjective by the way <laughs> oh yeah you based might on, say that based on based what on he everything. had for breakfast <laughs> like yeah it's like that's an insanely that's a, it's a tall order it's a tall order so that's what he was t- so, so okay well so i say like so that was yeah. <laughs> during that time uh i was writing a ton of songs trying to write that no-brainer smash hit and i was also doing a ton of co-writing so it was and that actually was i really enjoyed that experience as a songwriter. I had never done much co-writing. Did you have like an, another a publishing deal that... Well, so ultimately we did, but yeah. I didn't have one going into it. Okay. Um, and uh, and so there was just a ton of through connections through uh, Atlantic and different folks. Uh, they would set up writing dates for me <laughs> and other people that I knew that I admired. I got to write with like Adam Schlesinger from uh, Fountains of Wayne, which is my favorite band of all time. And he has an EGOT, right? Is he an EGOT? I think he might be. I believe it. I mean, he's a super prolific, uh, amazingly talented guy that has worked across all those media. So I yeah. believe he could be an EGOT. Yeah. I, I have a, <laughs> a couple of friends I know from college that uh, have egos. They, oh. d- they did not get the, a Tony yet. But I'm sure they will. <laughs> he has three Emmys and a Grammy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you were, so anyways, you were able to collaborate with some like amazingly people that you revered and people who had a lot of success in the industry. Yeah, which was, a, which was a really cool experience. And I also, frankly, collaborated with people that I thought were horrible sellouts and folks that I didn't want to be working with. But that was like its own kind of uh, amazing life experience too. And uh, so I say that because I would, especially I would fly to LA for like a week and I would have uh, writing dates with people. It's kind of the craziest thing because you just show up you like go out there in the morning and you meet them and you shake hands and you just start writing a song. <laughs> like Tinder of writing. Yeah. I mean, but it's, so it's kind of amazing. Would in you have some coffee ways. first and get to know them or just be like, let's go? Like, Depended on the person. Interesting. Right? Like, so, uh, so actually, and some of them were great sessions. So actually the guy uh, from Aqualung was a session where I just kind of showed up and he was like, hey, I was noodling on this this morning. And I was like, yeah, that's great. What, what about this? And we just dove right in. And we wrote Just Decide, which is a song that uh, was probably one of the best liked ones off of Welcome to the Breakdown. So we've played it live a ton. It's like a, a definite fan favorite live. Um, and that just kind of came out in one day. And it was uh, just a, we, we dove in. And then actually, you know what? I think his daughter came home later. And we all went out for frozen yogurt. Or he called it yogurt because he's <laughs> British. But uh, some, some of them went like that. And it was amazing. Mm. And then there's other ones where you know, I, I would show up and we would talk a lot and we just couldn't quite find a vibe. And even one or two of them where it was like, we sort of worked for half a day and was like, you know what, this isn't a good fit. We shake hands and go our separate ways. That's fine too. And then, and then, so in that situation, Brian, would you, if there were like a baseline or a chord progression in that song, would you have to then call them a co-writer if you took it 
and worked on it somewhere else? Or like, yes. had it, oh, you would. 100%. What if you showed up to the session with the chords written, though? I mean, so if I had showed up with stuff and nothing was added and then we just took it and left, then oh. there was nothing, no, like, writing there. So actually, that that exact thing happened. I don't even know if I mentioned this in the YouTube video, but one of the sessions where, and I'm not, like, bad-mouthing in any way, but uh, I that track so maybe i'll I'll back up for a second so the story you'd asked about was around uh, a track that affectionately became called the wells track because it was one of the days that was like one of the most exciting i showed up to work with a guy named greg wells who's just an amazing producer multi-instrumentalist he's one of those folks that a lot of people may not have heard of his name but you you look up his credits and you're like oh god this guy's fingerprints are all over all this stuff i love um and so we didn't know each other, but we just sort of dove in and in the first day made a track that we both were super psyched about. Um, but I only had a day of time with him and we hadn't written any what they call top line. So no melody lyrics. Okay. It was just a track. The chords, I mean, it was fully fleshed out and well recorded with like drums, guitar, because we were working in his studio. So, and he had an assistant. So not only did we like make a demo, it was like an amazing bed of, of music. Um, but he was so excited about it and into it that he sent it to the A&R guy before we had actually like written any melody or lyrics. And uh, Without your knowing? Oh, yeah. I mean, but not in a negative way, but just because he was so excited. He's like, look how great this is. And uh, the main A&R guy was like, this is it. This is the hit. This is it, guys. All right. you need to do now is write melody and lyrics. Universally relatable <laughs> lyrics and catchy, pithy <laughs> phrases right (laughs) right like on this track it's it and it was like uh on one hand exciting because you're like well i think he's into this but on the other hand it was like how can anything possibly match up what he thinks you know my uh my wife actually referred to it as uh the perfect wedding dress apparently this is a thing for like uh women especially that are that that have some idea of the perfect wedding dress in their mind, which actually stops them from ever picking a dress because every dress in real life can never measure up to the perfect wedding dress in their head. Interesting. <laughs> they always just find something wrong with the one that they try on. It's like the platonic ideal, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Like, like any, any copy of that is going to be imperfect. Because it's real. <laughs> because it's real. <laughs> it can't be the platonic form or the, your, your idealized. Yeah, exactly. So, so it, what was the aesthetic like thing that, that he loved? It was the, the riff, right? It had a, it had a riff. It had uh, it so it used chip tune, and I think the chip tune and the the guitars just sat re- together really well too. And even just like the initial mix, it had some hooky stuff. It was a great track. I love the track. <laughs> I think people yeah. love the track. But so then the so the whole story of the YouTube video was from there. It was like I wrote a bunch of different versions. None of them were like you know catchy hit enough. But then it was like all right, well we'll just we're gonna get some more folks. And so. Uh, one of them was a version Rivers Cuomo from Weezer yeah. did two versions that are kind of <laughs> wacky, but like also just amazingly surreal to hear like, you know, Rivers Cuomo's voiceover yeah. by stuff. And uh, Adam Schlesinger did a version uh, that was also kind of uh, a little bit like wacky in its tone, um, but also just nuts to hear. And it was really catchy. Actually. I, I still have like the playlist with all, all these demos um, it's like a, you have a SoundCloud playlist of it, right? Or is it? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I yeah. think so. A lot of a, a lot of yeah. them that I had, I put up publicly, um, and then man, yeah, just all these different ones. Uh, 
that were and actually so Chicago was ultimately the one that that we liked the best as a band mm-hmm. uh, and that was one that I had just written by myself from a from a melody and lyrics perspective um, but yeah it was just a crazy journey sort of through all that because ultimately none of none of it was the big hit but but interestingly right. I went back for another writing session uh, and we wrote geeks oh. And I, you know, it's funny because in my mind that was like from Kaboom. I thought like that was as singly as we were going to get. Right. Uh, and not only that, like it went on KTCL. JJ, our manager, got it tested out on KTCL in uh, in Denver, and it tested really well. Like right. it went to number one. The the numbers like there was a couple other songs out at the time by major artists Adele and some other folks, and it was like testing right up there with. Uh, it was super. <laughs> Mind blowing, but ultimately, yeah, it was one of those things where um, nobody at the at the label they were like, "Guys, you're not like you're the this weirdo chiptune band we signed. We're not taking you to radio." Like, eventually, they even um, had uh, some because JJ, our manager uh, at the time, was just like a very savvy guy and and like pushed the issue because it was testing super well and all this stuff. And eventually, they, they collected a bunch of like rejection notices from essentially they had the A&R team put it together it's like here's the reasons that we're not taking this to radio <laughs> you're A&R like, okay. told you that or yeah. told him that yeah and it's interesting so the reason we ended up working together is because JJ was also managing me at the time yep and JJ had had the surprise success of being kind of behind the Gautier somebody that I used to know single mm-hmm. and what was it the Flowbots handlebars yeah I mean that's was JJ's, I feel like, <laughs> initial calling uh, card. Yeah, really. the thing that really put him on the map. And it was like he'd work with these kind of weirdo, niche I don't mean that in a disparaging way, but no, like these non conventional artists yeah. that and find I a think way. he would say that in a yeah. positive way. He and was- it, yeah, in a positive way. And and that he remember he told me he sent a letter to the president of your company explaining he approached that single in the way that he'd approached those other two singles and just because they didn't have the chutzpah to follow through. And it, it tested so well in Denver. And like, as an aside from a first person account, remember the the Denver show was it Bluebird mm-hmm. was one of the like sold out, like, or at least, yeah, pro- yeah sold it out. Full. It was one of the best shows of the whole tour because you'd had a radio single that, that J- turns out <laughs> J- J- pushed yep. and made happen. Well, and, and nerf and the, the program director, KTCL, not to put it all on, on JJ, this uh, certainly his, sort of uh, doing to get in the door but then we had a bunch of allies there too that once it, especially once it showed like it was testing well they were really championing the song too at so. the radio station mm-hmm. but the the point is that the um, major label people weren't so instrumental oh right no 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 the label had nothing to do in fact they were not helpful because they were right well yeah. so this is like how it was kind of explained to me after the fact is like in in trying to take it any wider like it's one thing to get a song on a station and get it tested out but uh, in trying to get any wider it's funny when you're signed to a label you almost have this other question so like think about it if if jj is trying to do it on his own or any manager or anybody talking to a different radio director saying like look this has worked really well at ktcl here you know here's what's going on um the the program director on the other radio station is going to be like yeah but so i have a meeting every week with a guy from atlantic and he's not talking not talking about this so like what gives here so what's what's fishy with this story? Right. You know, um, I'll tell the story very quickly because this could be a long thing, and I'm going to keep it brief. I know you're probably you're not really an ICP fan, right? Not in general. I mean, I'm yeah. aware of the movement, and yeah, you know, I've, uh, 
I, I'm not anti-Juggalo in any way, uh, <laughs> but I would not say that I'm a, a huge ICP head, no. Um, part of One of the interesting things about their history is, similarly, they had done a lot of stuff um, independently mm-hmm. and grown a local following as you had in Chicago. And they got signed to, um, it was Jive Records okay. in the mid-90s. And it was big in Detroit because basically on the um, history of what they'd done locally. And so- what they had achieved locally. So they were like, okay, well, if we can do this in Detroit, let's see if we can do this in another city. So they blindfolded their tour manager. He threw a dart at the map, landed at Dallas. They went to Dallas and they just pushed the album so hard and, and sold another like 20,000 copies in Dallas. And Amazing. they c- called a and and they're like, look, the reason it's not reacting is because you aren't pushing it. But it's, we're showing that if we take the Juggalo stuff to this other city and work it like we did, it will react. And- they knew at that point that like it was gonna not you couldn't put your all your hopes and dreams in some A and R person's. Oh, hands. not at all. And you can in fact prove that by like doubling down on your hard work. But and the reason I tell that story is because it reminds me of that YouTube video where you I could tell that you were probably like in a lot of mental anguish having to redo the song, but you also were like really determined to either prove them right. Or prove them wrong, or just <laughs> ma- instead of just forever being in like this suspended right. animation of what could yeah. be, right? Yeah, you know, and it's funny. So we were talking about this before we started recording. I, I have no animosity towards like I, I still view that time of of uh, of my life as as just an incredible life experience. Like I never just thinking about myself. I never thought I would get to have that chance of. <laughs> of doing a lot of the things that we got to do, you know, we, we probably wouldn't have been touring together or, or known each other as well. If I hadn't, if we hadn't uh, done the label thing uh, again, from mm-hmm. all those writing sessions, even the ones that I, I didn't love or that didn't go anywhere. Like I learned so much, like those were really great experiences. And it's, it's, so I say that because there's no, in my head, it's not like, Oh man, those jerks. And like, they screwed us over. Like, no, we we rolled the dice and you talking know, about Atlantic. You don't think of yeah, like that. That's yeah, great, exactly. Man. It's like while here's the thing. You're like when it came down to it, you're right that like we sort of did everything we could. Uh, JJ again, our manager, I think took in, incredible strides and got us to incredible places, considering that he was pushing like a chip tune nerd rock band, right? Uh, trying to get them at like national alternative radio. Uh, but when you know push came to shove and the rubber hit the road. We ultimately didn't didn't tip. We didn't, you know, they weren't willing to 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 go with it. And so it's like I get that. If I'm a business person sitting, you know, at Atlantic headquarters in New York City, like I'm gonna I'm gonna have a hard time uh, putting my backing on iFi Dragons. Like especially at that time, that was a weird time in the music industry too, where like everyone was still pretty petrified. It was pre Spotify. Oh, it yeah. Was before the major labels had kind of figured out this whole digital thing. And there was a lot of like, I don't know, the, you know the phrase, uh, nobody got fired for buying IBM? It's oh, kind no. of a businessy That's, phrase, but like see what you, mean. you get yeah. the idea. Like yeah. it, back in the day, uh, if you were trying to be a niche tech vendor or something like that, like yeah. it was really hard because IBM was the standard and like people, it was not, they were, might not have been ahead of the curve. You might not have the latest tech, but like, you're not going to get fired if you hire IBM for a project. Even if the project ends up blowing up and being a complete failure, you're not going to get fired because you did the smart thing and hired IBM. <laughs> okay. So it's That's like, funny. That's, you know, yeah. it's, it's the, it's the safe choice. So the equivalent being you programmed the safe, like green day single or something. Exactly. It, That's what you pushed to radio, right? No, they were, 
No, they're Warner, Warner. so I think... Uh, what's, in the, what's a big Atlantic? So Atlantic is owned by Warner, or was. At the oh. time. I don't really follow it much anymore. So uh, let's see, Atlantic at the time, uh, there was... Tori Amos. <laughs> it's not really the same genre. <laughs> I don't know. Bruno Mars It was breaking Great at the example. time, too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and or, or there's some, but but the but the better example for the IBM parallel might be yeah, some like older or somebody who is a well established act that you're trying to take their new uh, single to radio. Stone Temple Pilots, I think, was there, and oh. they were like, you know, we're gonna try and push the new Stone Temple Pilots song over the new iFi Dragon song. Like yeah. that's the choice, right? Somebody's somebody's not gonna stick their neck out, or it would take somebody inside that organization sticking their neck out to say, we're gonna take a big risk on these guys, <sighs> and that just uh, at least at the time, like it just. Well, that wasn't happening a lot. It wasn't just us, but like, uh, yeah, there's, there's kind of all sorts of elements that go into that for sure. Well, you were the, you were the chip tune band that got the, got the deal. Cause it was kind of an underground thing and uh, people were aware, but the first rock band to implement that, to get like a mainstream record deal. Right. Yeah. I'd say, but also we, we were such a funny, like black sheep of the chip tune world anyway, because we're a band and not like, I mean, I feel like yeah. the, a lot of the chiptune world is straight electronic. Like no, <laughs> they don't want the guitars and rock. Like, I mean, the closest you get in that world is Anamanaguchi, which is basically like still very dominant chiptune. That's like the centerpiece. And then you've got you know, guitars and drums and their music is great. Um, but it's like very, still mostly instrumental. It's like very much still the, the vibe of the chiptune world. Whereas we're, we try and do some fusion of like, it's rock and it's chiptune and it's, it's, all this stuff and it's like nerdish, but it, the the subject matter is not as nerdy as most um, nerd uh, culture acts. So it, you write pop songs, that, yeah, kind of, yeah, <laughs> for better or and worse. Because you, because you, Brian, it's interesting that like your influences are like Fountains of Wayne, yep, and like um, stuff with when you would DJ when we were in the band, you play <laughs> stuff with like very catchy, enjoyable melodies. That's definitely my favorite stuff, and that's and that I think is why I fight dragons. Music is so great, and I, like I always get your song stuck in my head is because you come from that place where it's Lin Manuel Miranda talks about why he loves Weird Al, and mm. it's because the clothes of genre are what the songs wear, and so the parodies are or and his originals are like really effective because they're great songs that wear the genre of the clothes in a clever way. Hmm. And that's kind of why how we approached Hamilton, right? Sure. The clothes of of the historical period. So the clothes of nerd rock or chip tune or whatever you want to call it over these pop songs is a unique thing that you guys were doing and I think it's been emulated since, but was like kind of like timeless but also very topical at the time. And so thank that, you. Yeah, no, and I think that's what was exciting. It's still exciting about you guys, but I can also see how then that becomes a hard thing to to get to top forty radio necessarily, yeah. right? <laughs> Definitely, it, it, it's it's yes, but not all, impossible because well, <laughs> yeah, it might have been, might have been, uh, you know, a tough hill to climb for sure. Do you feel like Brian during all this? And we never really talked about this, but I, but that you were carrying the responsibilities of after you'd made the record, the responsibilities of it being a success, your band guys, your openers, your, your management, all this stuff was on your shoulders. Like, like, like Atlas or whatever. <laughs> like Atlas. If you got completely squished by right. the, by the globe. Yeah. <laughs> that you were trying that you then it was your baby, but also like, I remember the feeling of like, man, this Brian's, 
Yeah, I always guess I was an opener on that tour, and you took very good <laughs> care of me. But I was like, I know this is not easy. This I don't know. I'm I'm not trying yeah. to answer your own question, but like, what was that like? Yeah, then? no, I mean, we were talking a little bit about this. Yeah. So th- you're talking about the 2012 uh, tour we did, right? Yeah. So let's talk about chronology. So Kaboom came out 2010 or 2011. 20 the end of 2011. So, and then 2012, you did Warp Tour. Yep. And then you did that two month headline. Fall, yeah, that was our first headlining tour. So you were out a lot that year. Yeah. To, to really four months plus and meanwhile things with the label were like not f- super fresh or, or no so we had just gotten off actually so the we were still on the label when we did warp tour but then at, right after we got officially off and we actually we, that was why the tour that we were on was called the war of cyborg liberation tour <laughs> <laughs> i didn't realize that. yeah that was like the poster with yeah and but one of the coolest things i remember that you guys did and JJ, I guess, was part of this. Was getting the Nintendo 3DS and the um, the geeks. The geeks will inherit the earth. Yeah, was, it was a uh, Save World Get Girl. Save yeah, Save World Get that Girl. Was, 3D video. Yes, I still have. So I still have a Nintendo 3DS that I've disconnected from all internet. Right. So that I can still have our 3D video on it from when Nintendo Video had that 3D. Yeah, that was a crazy experience, too. So that was one of those things that, like, we never would have gotten to do. And you're right, it was definitely uh, a lot of JJ setting that up, but that we never would have gotten to, like, be a part of that if we weren't on the label, because that was Nintendo working with Atlantic to say, mm-hmm. who are some acts of yours that we want to do 3D videos for for Nintendo Video? So it was, like, you know, Bruno Mars and a bunch of uh, big popular acts that Atlantic had and us. Right. And it, but it was nuts. We got to fly out to LA for a day and do like a crazy elaborate shoot on a like B movie sci fi set. Like aliens, right? Yep. Oh, and yeah. Guns and it was casts. Yeah. There was a couple like alien women dressed like we were having green makeup and yeah. like another dude who played like uh, an alien and a bunch of things. And then Packy was in full werewolf makeup. <laughs> like it was, it felt like a real like movie set for a day where everyone just got together and it's fun. Oh, it was, it was insane. It was so fun. If you were to ballpark the budget, what do you think it, it was a hundred grand? Jeez. Yep. No ballpark. That was the budget. A like, hundred grand. Crazy. And that was, wow. And that was then on, that was on the, 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 uh, that was part of the tab to recoup, right? Uh, that's actually or a fair th- question. No, I, so that's not because that was a Nintendo project. That Nintendo was not like uh, the label paying for a music video. No, they never would have paid for us to do a hundred grand music video. So, but because it was part of a, um, program, that was actually marketing for the 3ds like this ah. was nintendo video so it was actually came from nintendo dollars and that was, from the would label you say that's your biggest budget video oh, by a factor of 20 <laughs> <laughs> that's cool man and like, that- yeah every other music video we've done and we haven't even done that many we've like you know spent three or five grand max yeah that's and do you think that imagine now if like nintendo were paying for a rock band to do a video, a 3D video for the Switch or something. It's that just seems like a very much of that time. It's right because that's what I'm saying. Like at that moment in the music industry, people were were. I mean, the the larger companies were kind of freaking out, and and nobody had really figured out digital yet. Like right. iTunes, iTunes was happening. Everyone was like buying 99 cent singles on iTunes. And that scared the crap out of everyone because from a from a label perspective, you were like, man, we used to sell make great mm. margins on these albums. Now everyone's just going and buying the single for 99 cents. 
but we're still spending the same amount of money to push that singlet radio. It used to be you push that singlet radio, people go buy a the whole album. $20 CD, you just keep jacking up the price. Now you push that singlet radio, people buy a 99 cent download. They thought the sky was falling. Of course, you know, fast forward and they've, Spotify and a lot of other things have happened that, uh, you know, YouTube, even music in different ways, lots of platforms have started to monetize. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's a different, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not that close to it anymore, frankly, but I get the sense that it's a very different ball game than it was at that time. Well, but then going back to the original story we're talking about, therefore your A&R persons has this intense infatuation with the fantasy that this one demo could then generate a million dollars and get a million downloads because it's so great that right. like, they have to- <laughs> The, the no-brainer has, smash hit song. The sp- smash hit needs to happen. Who cares about the rest of the record because it's about the singles, right? And so therefore, yeah, it's like- um. It's it's a lot of pressure, and it's also a lot of... Uh, yeah, so I mean, going back to yeah. what your point, so yeah, setting the stage for that. So we had, it was a ton of pressure. Like actually, so while I grew a lot from that experience as a writer, because mm-hmm. um, I'm the, the songwriter for the band, so yeah, d- I did definitely feel like it was on my shoulders whether or not we were going to succeed as a band because I needed to go write that hit song. And then especially once uh, things didn't happen with geeks at radio and we got our way off the label um it was and then that doing our first headlining tour in that fall it was tough like we it's funny thing to say because i I, the way i put it is as a band we've gotten farther than i ever could have conceived (laughs) like it it kind of is nuts to me that we can roll up to any given city in america and 50 or 100 people will come and pay to see us play music like that's insane to me um, but it's also funny because there's five people in the band, so it's a different story than you or, or other people we know um, who are, are solo acts, where it's like, not only is there a bunch of gear we have to bring, but there's just five humans. And so at that time, especially, we, we had been doing it full time for a couple of years, and it was just a, a really tough reality check to be like, look, you know, 50 people showing up is not going to pay for five people's livings, especially given the fact that we've got to bring all our gear and have a van and all this stuff. Like we we're not really even making money <laughs> at that point. And, mm. and th- again, this is funny because it's all pre Spotify and a lot of like monetization things that, that could happen down the road. Um, yeah, that was a, it was a tough tour in a lot of ways. Well, so you had no tour support from the label. No, we were off the label. Left. <laughs> yeah, man. And so that- actually, but they, again, talking about good and yeah. bad, they helped us pay for that. We owned a van that they had helped pay for it to begin with. So okay. it's not like, Oh, that's good. You know, it's not like they didn't do anything for us. You so we have, had that van. <laughs> you didn't have to like return like for the wheels or something. <laughs> right. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that, and then you were, that was, and I remember you guys were very like generous to me, which I wanted to go on record. I appreciate that because oh. you guys, you, you generous to me. You're kind to me. I was like, I know sometimes I'm a little, on tour back then, especially. You're a little wonderful. A little wonderful. No, there was like some. You're a lot some, wonderful. Thanks, Brian. We joke about like <laughs> the s- stories and like with a lot of memories from that tour. We really got we have became a lot of close. memories. We had, I think, like some of our highest highs and lowest lows. We, I mean, we're not going to, we don't have to <laughs> publicly name any stops on that tour, but both. we, we Vernal, had some, Utah. Wow. You went and called it out. No, that 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 I was. I remember you guys went out and I took the bed and I was like, okay, whoever comes back, we stay at this house. We're talking about this. I just want to put go on record. And I was like, okay. I told the people we're staying with, okay, whoever gets back, they share the bed with me. And like, we're trying to 
make room on the floor or whatever. But I passed out. <laughs> but the room that was in, the door was closed. So all y'all had to stay in the living room on the floor and the yeah. couch. And it was, I always felt like, yeah, I wish that, well, it was selfish. Yeah, like, I wish that it had been <laughs> more like share the love. Because you guys were the headliners and you guys deserve to be comfortable. So I just want to say that's not how you're supposed to act. Can I tell Lars. you something? What? I never held it against you. Really? No. Oh. I was glad you got a night's sleep. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Uh, really? But, but, so, but so there was also some like really amazing shows. It's funny because we had yeah. such a blast. I mean, we ended at the Metro in Chicago, which actually I think that whole show is on YouTube still for like streaming. Yeah. Um, and that's, we had some great shows. I mean, any kind of crazy places from, I remember Portland. We were just talking about this with Chad earlier, but like Portland, Oregon, places that we've honestly not maybe even played since then, but we're just great stops on that you on haven't that played tour. portland since then no so we we haven't toured very much in the last few years at all other san francisco than was good san francisco you had slims we had a yeah. great time you because you you do like some midwest or like we did the east coast last year yeah it's funny just geographically where we live in chicago it's a lot easier for us to like drive out to new york and back essentially right <laughs> and stop at a couple places along the way in right. like cleveland and uh boston when well, the boston's on the way but you know what i mean like do a little loop and east coast down to like dc yeah that, like takes us a week whereas if we try to go to the west coast it's just a lot harder to get out it's a big country and you think chicago's in the middle but it's not no you're central it's but like not a really third central. yeah exactly it's like the middle but it's actually like uh much closer to go to the east but so how far is detroit from chicago four hours Pretty close four hour drive and then you get to detroit you're on eastern standard time yeah you get to indiana you're on eastern time yeah, yeah. chicago is like at the edge of that time zone yeah so that so so it's not easy for you so for you guys so to do the west coast you have to have more time available and you now right. have been very successful successful at your day job <laughs> i don't know how much you want to get into it but like i mean i'm talking about it. it's cool. no big deal you started after that tour you were mm-hmm. like all right well let me figure out some other income streams, basically, yeah, right? Yeah, sort of without the, the – one of the downsides of – so when you when you sign a label deal, and we were just talking about this, like you, you lock up your intellectual property, and you hope that ultimately you're trading that for some bigger success for what will come. But if it doesn't pan out, they still own it. So like we don't really get royalties on um, Welcome to the Breakdown, Cool is Just a Number, or Kaboom. Uh we got physical rights so we can still press copies and sell them online at our shows, but all the Spotify revenue, which is likely pretty significant, um, like, you know, crazies and geeks each have a couple million plays. Uh, we don't see any of that. So it's, it's an interesting spot we were in, which was we, from the revenues on 2012 could tell that we really couldn't do it sustainably. And, uh, in a, as a touring band, at least like full time anymore, and uh, and yet we didn't have control of our intellectual property up to that point. But can I ask you a question? Yeah, were something that get like a hundred million views, you could p- plays, you could potentially recoup, right? And then start oh, yeah. getting royalty. I mean, if if by some you know fluke of of the universe, yeah, somehow Crazies ends up like who even knows? Yes, but if in if the it, new Star Wars movie, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. They're like, we need this nerd rock song from ten years ago. Right. Uh, it could happen. It could maybe, happen. Maybe Guardians of the Galaxy three. <laughs> I don't know. I'm into it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, Chris Pratt, if you're watching this, you really gotta, uh, or listening to this, I don't know why he's watching a podcast. Uh, but, um, but yeah, if in that world, it, I mean, the, the reality is there's all sorts of creative accounting in that world too. Like if, if, if something outlandish happened to the point that it really should recoup, we could probably put our foot down, but in reality, 
it was just one of those things. So anyway, yeah. Creative accounting. That's to, a euphemistic way yeah. of saying like <laughs> this, this, uh, this, this version of Excel cost us $100,000, something <laughs> like that. Right. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Finding more expenses and chargebacks and things like that. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so I, I had to figure out uh, if, if we couldn't do iFact Dragons full time, what was, uh, what was I going to do? And then, you know, bada bing, bada boom, I ended up as a pre-sales engineer working in Salesforce. <laughs> and so that's interesting because I remember when I was talking about that, you said there were some similarities in the skill set that you'd kind of learned on the road and ordering merch and design and all that <laughs> stuff, right? That were like not, it wasn't an alien. Well, so yes and no. I kind of, I've had the weirdest sort of career, quote unquote, um, in a lot of ways. So, so after... After uh, that 2012 tour, I I had to get a job of some kind, and uh, I was just looking on Craigslist, and I found a listing for a, a comic book printing company that happened to be, uh, literally, the office was across the street from my house. And I was like, well, this seems great. Comic book printing across the street. That's crazy. Yes. Yeah. In Evanston, Illinois, like north suburb of Chicago. Okay. Yeah. So I went in. I mean, it, it was just like a account generic account management job uh that but they were just looking for people that um that were interested to that kind of wanted to learn about comic books and their help grow his international small kind of printing startup and so i joined uh and that was actually what had a ton of overlap because it was working in like a, a startup type environment even though i didn't really have any formal business background you know i've two or i have an arts degree and a philosophy degree um but from having like run a band and just tried to start it up and, and guerrilla marketing, especially there was mm-hmm. a ton of overlap. So I ended up working there for like three plus years. And actually in that time we grew the printing business, uh, into like a three, $4 million business. Um, and like a lot through expanding into comic book printing and custom game printing. So I took like the stuff that I learned on Kickstarter and helped like other people doing Kickstarters, like print their games and print their comic books uh, and also, while I was there, I got to conceive of and launch a business for Magic the Gathering card carrying accessories. And you love Magic it's called the Pirate Lab. I do love Magic. Uh, so yeah. it was like, yeah, because we had done for iFi Dragons, uh, we had done a theme song for uh, Duels of the Planeswalkers 2014, <laughs> which was uh, you know, Magic the Gathering video game. And we, when we were on right. tour, we got to stop in to Wizards of the Coast and do a draft. And it was like, I mean, that's a blast. Awesome. And weren't they? Weren't you? Were they on Warp Tour 2012? Oh, and then so no, yeah. So Warp 2014, uh, actually, it just turned out that a bunch of folks like Ryan from Yellow Card and uh, some other folks uh, that I knew were all just kind of also getting into Magic the Gathering, and it was like really cool. So we would, after the set, we would just get around outside of like Yellow Card's bus or somewhere else, and just bunch of us would sit around doing Magic the Gathering drafts. That's what's up. So you had, so Warp 2014, you would have played Portland. Oh, yeah. You're probably right. But not a club show. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, okay, so you were doing that for a few years. And so, but things would, would opportunities would come up with the iFight Dragons that you then, like, had to balance the yeah. two, right? Yeah, well, my boss, uh, not, so I was working at that point at the comic book printing company, and I'd actually gotten promoted and, and was taking a larger role there. Uh, and I told my boss, like, uh, so they've asked us to go on warp tour. Is it okay if I work remotely for two months? Oh, wow. (laughs) He was like, uh, you know, okay. As long as I can come with you. 
<laughs> so really, for one week of Warped oh. Tour 2014, I brought my boss in the bus with us, and he rode. It was amazing. He had a blast. We had so much fun. Oh, what a great and it boss! Was, oh, I mean, incredible. shout out to that guy, yeah. man. That's awesome. Absolutely. So, hey, for all of your comic book printing needs, go to printninja.com. <laughs> and for all of your Magic the Gathering carrying case needs, go to piratelab.com. Because even though I no longer work there, I still love those companies and those people. And I hope, well, you know, I, they're great companies and uh, do right by people. So, uh, you know, it's interesting, Brian. I wonder if when you started working with them, maybe they didn't say this, but obviously they're they're aware of your success with your previous band right was, was that really the only thing on my resume <laughs> he said my uh, the comments actually that that boss at the time his comment to me was i've never had to verify a candidate on youtube before it's <laughs> <was> like well <laughs> to look, yeah and but like being like this is knowing what you had to do to reach the success that you achieved it's interesting how pursuing your passion and doing the non-conventional unorthodox thing sometimes can lead to like un oh yeah surprising success and through all this, we're talking about this. We have a mutual friend in the TV world who w- became aware of you, and you did a theme song for Adam his Goldberg. show. Yeah, yeah, Adam Goldberg. <laughs> yeah. And and that never you never would have re- thought that you'd then have this successful TV jingle. Not at all. Like it still kind of blows my mind. <laughs> but people people don't like people in TV don't necessarily start out playing club shows with their chip tune rock bands, right? Like composers like I don't think that's the plan A for a lot of them, no. <laughs> you've had a very um surprising career where I always loved hearing what you and I still do because you I think you see look at the world differently. You find success on your own terms and you're not compromising with your music. Like you you make sure you put out the best stuff possible. Oh. And I love that about you, you, man. man. I just want to say that. That's appreciated. <laughs> Have you um, heard of the book Range? No, please tell me about it. Oh, my God. So I'm I'm a pretty big reader. Like, I, I read... Uh, I'm we right talk about, we, Yeah, we talked about this on uh, on that tour last fall. So the two, two genres of books I essentially read nonstop. One is uh, fantasy. <laughs> so I'm, I'm always reading a fantasy book uh, at any given time. But the other is Range. Who's it by? David Epstein. So, so Range by David yeah, Epstein. The book is Range by David Epstein. Um, so anyway, at any given time, I'm reading a fantasy book and some sort of uh, like psychology or self self improvement <laughs> type of book, like th- something that helps me learn something and just get better at something. What was your do, your your two degrees in? Real quick, I just oh, yeah, I have a a musical theater performance degree okay. and a uh, BA in philosophy. That's dope. <laughs> So that's kind of similar. I mean, the fan musical theater is kind of like fantasy and like like um, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe it's not related. <laughs> you have a there was no plan. You're a Renaissance man, Brian. <laughs> um, <laughs> no plan. So so I say that anyway. So the the book range is uh, is so this is a book that resonated with me and just kind of blew my mind as I was reading it because it was like spelling out the way I think about life and it's all about the subtitle is something like how generalists triumph in a specialized world. And it's all about the different Mm. perspectives and connections that people bring who are working across domains and across fields and are not necessarily just following kind of plan A throughout the entirety of their life. Right. Uh, And so that was like, 
yes, my thinking about it helped me justify the like sort of ridiculous smorgasbord of things that I've done in life and career. At what point then, so what year were you saying you discovered this book? Rain? Oh, it just came out this year. Oh, But it, so but it was something that made oh. me think, it helped me like recontextualize my last 10 years of life. Right. And how like you've, you've, um, you found success in ways that other musicians maybe didn't see like opportunities, right? Maybe. I yeah. mean, I, I, a lot of, I, it's hard because I also, like I, I've gotten to work with great people. I've had a lot of luck. Mm. Like, and yeah, by all means, I, I feel like I've, I'll give myself credit for being persistent and working hard, but like, it's also going to be a lot of, there's always a, an element of chance and luck and randomness that goes into this stuff. And I think I, I always try to work really hard to, to hone my craft and to make sure that when those opportunities arose that I could capitalize on them. Yeah. Luck is opportunity meets preparation and you've been prepared and found the opportunities. And, and another interesting thing is this story you told me, I remember we played the show in Jersey and we like last year we were driving <laughs> through, we drove through Harlem because you were dropping me off in Brooklyn. Cause you guys were staying in Brooklyn too. Yep. And we, didn't we drive past like one of your old neighborhoods or, could be. And we, we mean when I was living in Harlem? Yeah. Were you living up there? <laughs> yeah, in and, central Harlem. When and, I yeah. yeah, right after college, I lived there for like three months. Because you were, you said you were a soldier at FAO Schwartz, right? Yeah, I was a toy soldier at FAO Schwartz. Yep. Doing, I'm in a lot of people's family photos. <laughs> doing musical theater stuff. Sort of. I mean, I never really, because that was, so I studied musical theater. Yeah. And actually, a lot of my friends from college are all musical theater folks. My, my best friend is, uh, a musical theater actor and actually has also worked with Adam Schlesinger in a totally, in totally different capacities. That's awesome. <laughs> but he's also a writer and has had a, like a Broadway show and stuff like that. What's this show? Uh, so it was called glory days. Okay. Uh, it only ran for one night, but he's had a lot of other writing success. Um, and he's also been a Broadway actor and, and all this stuff. So he's, he's actually kind of a Renaissance man as well. A big inspiration to me, best man in my wedding. Um, actually, what's his name? Nick Blameyer. Okay. I have I ever introduced you guys? How have I not? No, I think you, you had, should talk to him for no, this podcast. He, he was, I should, man. You guys he would get along. He was at our Brooklyn show. Yeah. And I talked to him for me. He was real nice. Real He's cool. He's a very nice guy and a very cool guy. Okay. Actually, yeah. I would love to talk to so him. So he and his, his wife are both fascinating people. Like they're just amazing artists and great people that are, they're also have a like kind of Renaissance careers in their own way where they're like writer, performer, um, smart people (laughs) and i love this podcast medium because we're allowed to do tangents but one thing i wanted to say like you're talking about range right and something cool that i love about musicians and songwriters our job when we're in the studio in the lab writing songs is finding harmony and narrative from the chaotic stressful like like chaos of life right yeah. and so range it's funny because it's 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 a metaphor for like the range of your skills but also like your m- melodic range sure and like the lot there's a lot of metaphors that come from like f- the skills jedi skills i'm using air quotes <laughs> from music that like you can apply in other things in life oh yeah 100 percent. and i think that's like, yeah important to like composition i mean performance too so that's you talk about it's funny but uh now my actual job is that I'm a pre-sales engineer for Salesforce for a software company. And my background as a performer comes in handy all the time. Like it's, I'm in a job where I, yeah, exactly. It's being a pre-sales engineer is like one half tech geek and one half performer, (laughs) like storyteller. It's, it's what it is. And it's, 
it's just really interesting because that's a part that is hard. It's a role that's hard to hire for, partially because you don't get that many tech geeks that are also performers. And But again, it's the fact that I've had such a weird career and different opportunities, I feel like, have definitely made me well-suited for it. Tech geek, yeah, tech geek, storyteller, performer, and then also the fact that like you're, you are able to storyteller you're able to know the beginning middle and end of like any sort of like like every like this podcast will have a beginning middle and and like we'll go we'll pro- which part are we at i think we're maybe middle toward- <laughs> the creamy middle then the, we're probably two-thirds in the dizzying highs okay yeah <laughs> no and so so yeah that's interesting brian that's very <laughs> interesting i kind of i love listening to your albums because it's uh, I, I was talking to Ben Garby about this. When we, remember we, you came to his apartment? We did yeah, the we did Jedi the video. Our Jedi video. Oh yeah. And I said, Ben, I sometimes I feel like when I tour with Brian, I talked to him too much about his music because I'm like <laughs> an, authentically a fan of his stuff, and I wonder if I bother him sometimes. And Ben and Ben goes, Well, how much do you talk about? I'd be like, Well, I'll ask him about lyrics. I'll ask him about concepts. And he'd be like, Sounds like you're sounds like you're not too annoying, but you may want to dial it back, Lars, <laughs> just for just so the air don't be too much of a, a fanboy and. I think it's what I love about each of your albums is they, they're thematic, right? They're like small musical theater pieces. A little bit. Some of them, especially the near future, like actually had a, essentially a song cycle for half of it. Yeah. It's a story of, can we, let's talk about the story of that album. That's, sure. I wanted to get into that. Oh, okay. So what, so, so first of all, for someone who hasn't heard that record, yeah. how would you explain the story and how it, and it's like the second side B, right? It's actually, yeah, I mean, it's a record, so you could start with anyone first, but yeah. it's, the, it's the side A, technically. It's okay. the first half of the record is one continuous song cycle. Yeah. So it kind of, I was at the time, I was getting into a lot of kind of prog rock and older like concept albums that were very much like designed around this idea of a side of vinyl or, you know, one a record. And then some of them are longer too that you get like, uh, Lamb Lies Down on Broadway and like ones that are actually super sprawling. Mm. But specifically, I was uh, thinking about Rush 2112 and the way that that is able to tell a story across one side of vinyl. Mm. And I wanted to to think about what I Fight Dragons could do in that format, like not trying to, to ape 2112 at all, but just thinking about this idea of take 20 minutes, like limit yourself to a side of vinyl and try and tell a story and at the same time also uh, it came with this idea of combining it with a graphic novel. So right. it's uh yeah, the in when you get it it's only available in vinyl. There's no CD version. So that even if you're not even if you're listening to the digital version, you've got the full uh, which booklet. I have. I have a copy. There you go. And it's streaming though too. Yes, yeah. But yeah. You never did CDs. Right. Oh, uh, interesting. Cuz it's got to come with a booklet. Right. <laughs> um, cuz it's got a graphic novel that like has some instrumental passages where you read the words. But yeah, it's a story that's like kind of loosely structured on a on a hero's journey framework um, about a, a 18 year old boy who it's funny when I like talk about it, it sounds really basic. But then when you tell it in the the, the um, musical form, it's more complex because everything has different pieces. But essentially, it's like an 18 year old boy who ends up uh, having some crazy uh, adventures with beings from another dimension that come there and ends up saving a girl's life and getting magical powers and fighting uh, some conspiracy theorists, maybe other dimensional evil beings in his town, all that fun stuff. Well, I mean, it's that's funny because that is in a way 
in a macro level, that's that's twenty one twelve. The be the guitar, the evil sure. beings of the communism, right? The based on like yes, it's, it's less uh, objectivist than twenty one twelve right. at its core, but. Uh, <laughs> A little more just general humanist, I guess. Uh, yeah. Well, the, <laughs> liberal humanism versus objectivism. But philosophically, I understand where you're drawing that parallel. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the like any sort of hero's journey, right? Yeah, for sure. Are you so? Are you an Ayn Rand fan? Uh, I've read The Fountainhead. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm, I, I feel like I had a moment when I was 18 that I would have called myself an objectivist for a month or two, but that's. That's about as far as it goes. Let's explain that word. Oh, objectivism. Yeah, yeah. The the philosophy. So the philosophy of uh, is it Ayn Rand or and I don't know. No, I've heard Ayn. Ayn. Ayn Rand. Uh, and it's it's essentially the philosophy of selfishness and and the argument that uh, sort of enlightened selfishness is the uh, ideal form of human kind of religion or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, enlight- enlightened selfishness. Uh, I think there's like some more specific terms for it that I'm butchering, but uh, her concept is if everyone's looking out for their own self-interest in a in an individualistic way, uh, that that will be better for the whole, as opposed to and she came out of Russia at a time when you know it was the worst parts of collectivism and mm-hmm. um, you know quote unquote communism, but actually just like fascism and <laughs> repression and uh, all the those types of things. So. That philosophy, I think, is in a lot of ways a reaction to the idea that everyone's supposed to be conformist and and work for the greater good, and the ways that that kind of creates perverse outcomes. So, in that sense, I I get it. It's the idea is it's everyone should, yeah. yeah, everyone should look out for themselves. But also, in 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 reality, that's a, a a tough road to walk. And also, if you read actual things about Ayn Rand's life, she's an interesting character as well. That uh, well, because isn't Anthem. I had a seventh grade teacher who actually had on this podcast, Mr. Salerno. He um, he got me into Rush, and he told me that twenty one twelve was kind of based and inspired by oh, the yeah. anthem, right? And so instead of a harp or something, he finds a guitar. Yep. Um, and then famously in Ready Player One, the book, that's big part of the plot. Yep. And so twenty one twelve is like this very far reaching prog rock opera that I wonder if now people would say it's a problematic story or to use her as cider as a reference or can art be timeless and i I think it can be timeless because here's the other thing i don't think it's as uh uh, strident in some ways as uh as ayn rand material can sometimes get and i think musically it's also just wonderful like neil pert may be you know a a staunch objectivist that's fine but i don't think the the 2112 itself is like a blatant like you have to be in very into iron Rand to get it like no i no, think that level know. is there yeah. but also to your point it's a basic kind of hero's journey as well where he finds the the guitar and it uh changes it sort of is the thing that helps and actually it's a bit of a tragic ending in some ways but mm, yeah uh because i think he dies right or ends up killing himself but uh it's interestingly, if you're not reading along with the notes, you can listen to the whole thing and kind of not get that right. too. <laughs> and and I think in a way, and I say this in a positive way, 
it took me a minute to realize that the first half of that record was one story. Really? When it was like, I was like, oh, Brian's, Brian's going through some interesting stuff. <laughs> Brian's telling <laughs> some different stories. And I was like, oh, it's- uh, Oh, the first half of our record. Yeah. Your record. Because it took me a minute to realize that that was, and then that this, the rest were like, Chicago's on that record, right? Like, Yeah, it's and then the back song. half of the record is just songs. Songs that aren't really related, right. other than they're about your life. <laughs> so do you see True. yourself in the character in the first half? Oh, yeah. Like it's so, I would say it's written from, this is like a funny thing to say and to admit, but I mentioned that like half of what I read at any given time is, is fantasy books. Right. And I've read those books since I was young. Yeah, uh, There were books that, I mean, even before third grade, second grade, but basically as soon as I started reading, I was reading young adult fantasy. And I would say for an embarrassingly long time, like well into high school, I, I was convinced that at some point, the adventure would begin like a, a portal would open up and I would be going to another dimension, like embarrassingly long time to, to, to really think it's in some part of my soul that that was going to be my life uh. because that was like the trope from all the fantasy books that I'd read. Like everything's normal until right one day. <laughs> yeah. And so I say that because it, you know, I, I've grown up and, and I no longer expect that nor would I, go through that portal because I've got a family and a lot of, you know, a lot of reasons to mm, stick around. Right. But it's interesting because that was certainly the jumping off point for me was thinking about like some of the just alienation and some of the depression is, is a loaded word. Cause and I, I would not have called myself um, a depressed person or depressive. And that, that's got a lot of folks that are struggling with that, that have um, that I, are, have implications. I don't want to, take on um i'm like butchering this at all but i'm trying to be sensitive to the fact that i'm not uh claiming to have had clinical depression but i certainly was uh someone who is introverted and struggled a lot with anxieties social anxieties especially um still do but growing up that was something that i think really influenced my outlook and part of the reason i would retreat into fantasy books and so Mm. When I think about, especially starting out with that song 18 and where it goes from there, that is absolutely based in not like true stories of my life, but thoughts and, and feelings of uh, of where I've been at at different points in my life. What are the lyrics to the chorus of the eight, 18? Uh, everybody knows what I should do. Everybody works, so I should too. Uh, how can I explain what feels so wrong? Living with the shame of feeling you don't belong. I'm kind of meandering around it here but yeah so you try and smile and hope that you won't always be alone with your dreams uh living in between 18 great lyrics thanks <laughs> i always thought you know brian when i first heard that i read that or heard it at i remember where i was my parents have um uh we have like a family vacation house up in tahoe sometimes i'll go up there and like catch up with my friend's music and have time alone. And I remember I was playing, I was playing Smash Brothers, listening <laughs> to your record on repeat. And that first song, I was like, this is Brian's, this, I, I hypothesize, this is Brian's relationship to the music industry. This is mm. him saying goodbye to everything that, like we talked about earlier, Atlas, like the weight. <laughs> you were throwing that off you and like going back to your adolescence and rebranding yourself and re, rebranding is definitely not the right word. Recreating yourself as a person who does his music because he loves it, and it's just part of his identity. Well, and Is that a, a correct reading? A hundred. So yes, because <laughs> cool. here's here's the other piece of it that you're talking about the um, 
that process of doing all the co-writing right. and, and trying to write the, the big hit song, I learned a lot, but I also absolutely lost my own voice because uh, after a while, I didn't, I didn't like anything I wrote anymore. <laughs> so actually, a bunch of songs on Kaboom, um, even ones that I love, are, are all co-writes with Matt Mahaffey, who, was, who produced Kaboom. Of self, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Matt Mahaffey. Self. <laughs> is, and that's is, his, his solo project? Yeah. Cool. I mean, well, it's had, it's had band members at various times, too, but it's pretty much him. Yeah. Um, and he's amazing, and collaborating with him was, was amazing, but it got to the point where the only songs I even liked were ones I wrote with him. Right. <laughs> like, I couldn't even write something by myself and enjoy it anymore. Um, and that was a, a, just a horrible place to be in artistically. And, yeah, the, so I wrote The Near Future and those four core songs and the motifs and stuff in the course of like three days. And it was part of it was exactly what you said, like just how do I throw off all of my own expectations or all of the, all of the voice in my head that's still saying, is it a no brainer smash hit? Because if it's not, it's worthless. (laughs) And so it was like, well, what if I write a 20 minute, um, you know, rock opera concept uh, thing that has, no pretension at even trying to be a no-brainer smash hit. It's just something that I want to say. No, a no, very non-conventional uh, way of writing a twenty-minute yeah. song. It's funny, man, because when Rush did twenty-one twelve in the documentary, I remember seeing that like they were kind of they were having issues with their label, and it was their way of saying like like this is our artistic statement of our independence. Mm-hmm. You know, they were still signed to ironically or coincidentally Atlantic the same <laughs> label that like they were trying to manifest their own like agency in the world too. Sure. It's interesting. That was an inspiration. So then what's the, the metaphor of the, of the uh, interstellar beings, they're aliens or never explained directly okay. interdimensional beings. Certainly they come from a, a, a different reality. And that's you maybe embracing the unknown of what, or, or you're just going, that's fan- you're going deep here, man. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, maybe that part isn't so like. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't trying to be a, a direct allegory in that way. If I'm right. just being real with you. Oh no, it's because we. Yeah, I know why. Because we did the Star Wars song together, and there's aliens in that. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm kidding. Um, so that was more. Ju- yeah, the, that was just like, where's where's the story gonna go? This idea of like, right? That that. Well, so the the I will say the piece of it that is again sort of hero's journey from a skeleton perspective is starting off with that core feeling of um of feeling like you're in between and you don't have a place looking for something to be a part of or looking for that meaning uh and not being able to find it and then actually it's through the the kind of fight and the the struggle that he gets from uh saving this the girl and her grandfather um that ultimately leads to the last part, which is fighting on. And mm. it's a, just a very different tone. And that's sort of the idea is finding that sort of inner, I mean, we're getting a bit literal here, but mm. <laughs> finding that like inner voice or the meaning that is, is the thing that you're fighting for and it keeps pushing you. And that's sort of the, the ultimate journey there is, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be interdimensional beings or aliens, but it could be. <laughs> okay. I was reading that into it. Yeah. Um, that's interesting, man. Well, this—you probably never gotten as deep about that story on a podcast before, huh? That's a hundred percent true. So I'm honored I have an <laughs> exclusive from the man. You have a record coming out, a new record, and um, let's talk about that album. Sure. You you funded it in a 
non-conventional way, right? Yeah, we were talking about this uh, earlier, but so we we did the weirdest Patreon in the world, right? Because <laughs> we're we're totally using the platform wrong. <laughs> you're or you're, or right, right? Or, maybe everyone, maybe, maybe we're all using it wrong. right. Yeah. Maybe everybody else, <laughs> including the creators, are all using it incorrectly, right? Because Patreon is a, is generally a format for people making um, recurring work, so web comics folks and. Uh, YouTube video makers and and even musicians that are releasing singles or things on a regular basis. Uh, so we decided to do a Patreon where we would post things on a regular basis, like every week, but we wouldn't actually do a paid release until the album was done. So we, right, in our two year, two plus years of Patreon, we've done one paid post. And so people would sign up and they commit that when when you released it in one post, they get charged for it. Yes. And so Although it's not really even a commitment because they could leave at any time or join at any time. <laughs> and then if they join now, they can access it without having to ha- have paid for it. That's true. <laughs> but we don't need to talk about that. It was fine. See, that's it's the fine. thing. Like I, we we're sort of doing it the wrong way. But it, to your point about the freedom, like it's been an amazing experience, and I. I regret nothing about the way we've done it. You, you're a person who's, um, you like you're talking about range, right? You're experimenting with new ways yeah. of doing things. Because remember, you were one of the in the first wave of bands to do Kickstarter sure. after having left a major label, and mm-hmm. that was phenomenally successful, right? Yeah, that was yeah. way more. I mean, well, so we, that was what we did to fund the near future, and it yeah. was way beyond what we thought we would raise. And then our, we went on to squander a lot of it <laughs> trying to. We made the record twice. Band almost broke up. It was uh, it was its own funny journey there. Which we were I didn't realize you made that record twice. Yeah, because you were. Well, how come? Oh God! So uh, we went. I I was very ambitious with the way that I thought we were going to make it, and we started working with a producer that was not a great fit, mm-hmm. uh, and he was pushing us in directions that weren't great. But at the time, I was like, you know, okay, let's do it. And then it really, it ultimately came to a, to a head that ult- that the band did not like where it was going, and I had to agree. Mm. And so, but we had we had already spent a ton of time with this guy, and we're basically down to the like there was no way to not pay him <laughs> for the record. So you had to, so did you have enough money then to redo it? We redid it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so th- are you saying there's we a made lo- it work? There's a lost I Fight Dragons record or a different version? No, it was this, a different version. Yeah. Interesting. Would you think I'll ever see Light Day or no? No, no, no. Interesting. It was not. I mean, it was directionally not as good. So it it, it was. I don't even know that he wasn't the right fit for what we wanted to do. I think it was no fault. He's an amazing producer, right? Um, but the the big change was after that we went and like really approached it more as a band mm-hmm. and and took a lot of sessions where we were working on it musically, like from the ground up. And I think that that's, if you listen to the near future, there's just a ton, especially the first half, there's a ton of like musical nuggets and just like Easter eggs and all this stuff that we like spent so much time putting together as a band. And shout out to Bill. Cause like he's really with the will post stuff, done some amazing stuff. Yeah. Bill wasn't own. on that record. <laughs> Bill, Bill did leave the band for that Sh- record. Oh, shout out to Bill. He was <laughs> on that record. He's not, but, I didn't realize that. No, yeah. He's so not. you played all the keys. I did all the chiptune programming, yeah. That's interesting that I, wow. Well, shout out but to Bill anyway. <laughs> I would agree. We love Bill. Bill came back and has made canonized. It wasn't like, uh, it wasn't, it was no sort of animosity. He just really, to your point, wanted to do some more solo stuff and felt he needed to kind of put his full energy towards that. Mm. So he did. I guess I wasn't 
I was listening and I wasn't reading the liner notes and the credits. And that, <laughs> that's interesting, man. You're thinking like, oh, Bill did this and yeah, that. Yeah, I did. I did. I thought that, honestly. Because uh, I knew that I knew that he wasn't touring with you guys, but I didn't realize he wasn't writing with you guys. Yeah, no. So he actually, interestingly, was a part of that first version of the record. Wow. But then after we hit the reset button, he moved to LA and was just, his head was on his solo stuff and he didn't, uh, didn't work on it with us. And he does these really ornate interesting tributes to like Radiohead and oh yeah man Pan- his album Pantheon is is just an incredible listen yeah. he's actually got a new album out this year as well which is just wonderful I should do an episode with him you should his solo stuff I agree he um yeah we've had some fun memories together and I think he's he's also a very spiritual person oh, yeah. you very. two are like he's like Harrison and I think you're more like maybe McCartney I don't know I'll take it I don't know <laughs> maybe he's Lennon Pat- yeah <laughs> Yeah, Packy too. We're just calling ourselves the Beatles here. Packy, Packy is very in, influenced by the '60s rock. Oh yeah, and so that's like so you have, and then you have. I love his solo stuff too. You should have him on the podcast. Yeah, he's he's <laughs> got great songs. Yeah, I should do an interview with him too. And Ari, who's yeah. doing stand up. I was going to say Ari's solo stuff is comedy. <laughs> yeah, and um, speaking of Rush, going back to Rush, your drummer Chad loves Rush. Oh yeah, he's yeah. the one that got me into Rush to begin with. Really? Yeah. Remember we talk. That's all we talk about on that tour, twenty twelve. <laughs> um, Brian, so your new record. Talking about Patreon, talk. Do you want to talk about some of the themes real quick? Do you sure. mind? Yeah. yeah. So uh, a lot of the new record. And remind me the title. Yeah, called Canonize. That's what I thought. Canonize. Yeah. Canonize. Uh, Spelled it's a play like, on words. Canon. C a well C a n o n e y e s. Two words. Two words. Canon Canonize. That's but Canon spelled like. Canon, not like canon. Like kaboom. No. That would be oh. C-A-N-N-O-N. Like canon, like a song. Yeah. Or like uh religious doctrine. Or like or, the books know, like a li- part of the English canon. major studies. Yep. Canonize. But if you canonize someone, isn't it spelled oh, you're saying, wait, isn't canonize C A N O N I Z E? It is. So it's but that it's, would be the religious piece. But if you, you're like making someone a saint. Or or in in if you're and when you like have to study books you study the canon of shakespeare right yep, that's that's the canon it is so why eyes like vision because you're looking so so thematically a lot yeah. of the record is about is about sort of that longer view and, and legacy and uh i had a so i had a daughter she's three and a half years old now uh but that was when i was writing a lot of these songs was when she was first born and i was really inspired for the first time in a while uh to to write and to write more i had a a period of time where I was just writing a ton and uh and a lot of the songs were about fatherhood or or family or just sort of taking a a different perspective I don't know it really changed especially the way I looked at songwriting because so so much so many of my lyrical things even talking about um the near future and things like that is a very introspective self-centered in some ways view and I, I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way it's just very there's a lot of self-centered, self-focused anxiety in the themes from a lot of that material. And Canonize still has some of that because that's just, I think, always going to be in my um, my vocabulary. But it's there's a lot more of it that's also focused on uh, either, not specifically fatherhood, but again, about this idea of, of a broader view and, and legacy and, and what you're sort of leaving behind and uh, thinking about things in that way, how, how you take a, a different view on life and on the people around you. Mm. So like a different perspective, the eyes 
Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So what about, that's interesting, Brian, because you hear artists talk about when you have a kid that it's harder to find time to create. That's true. But it sounds like you had the, you had this huge this influx of inspiration from fatherhood. Yeah, for sure. From a writing perspective, that yeah. said, actually making this album has been my daughter's three and a half years old, and the album is finally coming out. So, <laughs> but I would argue that the writing, everything else is just is just talking about genre is the clothes that the songs wear. Writing is the hard part, and writing is the thing that really takes those special milestones in your life to manifest great work. Right? Don't you think so? I'd agree. I'd say that it's hard to to just write the way that you could sit down and produce, like record something. You know, yeah, let's let's lay it down. Let's do this or that. But like writing has to come from somewhere. It's 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 the different hemispheres in the brain. If you look at that old sure. perspective, so that's cool. So you wrote. So how many songs did you write? That versus how many did you end up using? Twenty plus, I think. Wrote. Um, that were in consideration for the album. And actually that was part of the fun of the Patreon process is for the first time we were at, we actually released almost every piece of the works in progress. So as I had those acoustic demos and when I write, it usually starts with a like iPhone recording of me and an acoustic guitar. And I had about 20 of, of those, maybe a little bit more. And we would then work those up as a band into, we call it like a band scratch. So it's all of us just kind of playing in a room, Bill's on keyboards mostly, not uh, chiptune at that point. Um, and throughout the process, once a week, we would release some work in progress. So it started with a lot of the acoustic demos, and there were some of those iPhone recordings of us, the band in room playing. And then as we laid down some more scratch tracks and, and cool. built up the tracks, we would just release it as we went. But yeah, we ended up getting down to 12. 12. And so there, so it's like the fans are there with you in the studio as it comes to life. That was the idea. That's cool, man. And but so, but they only have access if they've committed to pay, but they're not being charged for them, right? Is <laughs> that, that is the trick. That's cool. <laughs> you yeah. could you could stay the whole thing, and we told people well in advance we're about to do our paid post, and you could be so out. You could be like peace. See you, Spotify. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're doing a thing where you're releasing them for the on the back end. Uh, on on Spotify and on the streaming services by single, right? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. So it's we're very much in a, like a singles based world, but we are very much an album band, like, right? For better or worse, that's kind of how we like to make music and consume. Most of us like to consume music that way too, in in the band. But uh, but so that was one of the great things about the Patreon is like, look, once the album was digitally finished, mastered, and ready to go, we released it to everyone on the Patreon. But then from there, we set it up so that we're releasing one song every two weeks leading up to uh, the last few songs are all being released on December 9th. Uh, and that's specifically around Spotify because of the way that their algorithms work it, and also your ability to submit to playlists and things like that. Uh, so we're on that kind of two-week cadence right now. And it's been awesome. Like People get to have new music on their release radar from us every two weeks. So you think So every week is too much? So yes, and also even just purely from the uh, submitting for playlists on Spotify. So one week is a minimum, and you, they say you should give it like two weeks. Who? So what's your digital distributor? TuneCore, uh, DistroKid. And does so DistroKid we, submit to those things? No. So, but uh, we actually use TuneCore for the near future. But because of TuneCore's model is really tough if you want to do that singles thing. Yeah. But DistroKid because it's all you can eat. Right, we could release them all as singles and then release the album, and it's not going to be uh, a really expensive proposition the way it might be with TuneCore. 
Um, so wait, explain the pitching to playlists and stuff. So that's all actually on Spotify. That's not uh, through your distributor. So you don't have to email and annoy people. It just happens through automatically. Your, well, through your Spotify artist account, you can submit your next release as long as it's uh, uploaded with a release date of two weeks or more in the future. I think it's even one week minimum. You do it yourself, dude. Yeah, and you like write your submission and you give what, them a bunch of What's the submission, genre. right? So it's mostly actually analytical around saying like what instruments are on, what genre, what moods. So they're kind of like going that way. And then there's like you write, I don't know, a few hundred words at the end about um, your song, what it's about, why they should listen. And then it goes into a like big queue at Spotify of <sighs> editorial listeners. That's so that dope. Review all the stuff and then some of it bubbles up to be to be on playlists. Actually, one of our uh, singles just this last week got on uh, the all new rock playlist on What's Spotify. What's up? Congrats, yeah. man! Thank so, you. so you, so so for people, that, I know a lot of content creators listen so to this podcast. So you were, so you submit it. It shows up on your artist profile on Spotify saying um, that you submit December first, December fourteenth, new I Fight Dragon singles coming. Yep. So you have to do this back end stuff. On your Spotify artist profile. And yeah. so it's going through, and you and maybe you do it on December 1st, probably earlier is better, yeah. right? And then there's two weeks for it to like go through this vetting process. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so crazy. No one, I didn't realize this, man. It's I, nuts. Pe- people want to charge you hella money to do this for you and do it badly. I'm saying that. <laughs> I believe you. I'm not saying that that's that's just the business. We're spreading the knowledge, the wisdom. Yes, yeah, so our our mutual uh, colleague and and acquaintance in general all around force for good in the music industry um jj italiano i think also had a you know, hand in helping shape that system and, and fighting for uh that vision at spotify as well of independent creators making making a living and and advocating for themselves and explaining why and how this can engage people on the platform through like a well-curated enjoyable like context that they consume music through. Yeah. I mean, for, so for example, you talk about Bill, um, will post his solo project had a song that was submitted through this system and just on the merits of the song alone, not any, uh, anything from the label pushing or promotion dollars or anything. It got added to a super popular, um, what they call an algatorial playlist. So it's editorial, but there's an algorithm behind it too. And it's now gotten a couple million plays. Ooh, it's that's a, like six yeah. grand right it's there. A, <laughs> like a million plays is 3,000, I think. Okay. That's what it breaks down to. I believe it. Not to count Will's pockets, <laughs> but like that's like, that's awesome. But it's, yeah, and it's just on the merits of it being a ra- an amazing song. It got added to this uh, playlist. Some editor listened to it through that submission process and liked it. And uh, and yeah, now it's, it has still been on the playlist for, for months and months and he's got a lot of listeners from it. So can you do it for re-releases or has probably no. helps if it's new? It's all got to be new. So this is what I like about DistroKid. Just just real quick and then we'll talk about the next steps in your life and we'll wrap this up. <laughs> um, DistroKid's cool because I did a song with my friend Chris Ayer who's a singer-songwriter and we took a Bon Jovi song and we did Interpolation. You Give Love a Bad Name and and it, it's it, I did this song when I was doing my Robot Kills record but I never released it and we made it Nerds Give Nerdcore a Rad Name. Right. And and he he sounds like Bon Jovi and it's awesome. But back in the day, you had to clear that with label and the songwriter and the publishing company. And 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 chant, the times I did do that, it would cost thousands of dollars. Oh yeah. And um, I do it though, and I recoup it in most cases. But now with DistroKid, if you submit it as a cover or an interpolation, they do all that for you. Mm. And so Bon Jovi's publishers want to recoup those dimes. So. 
DistroKid will send them the money from that song, and you don't, and they are able, they make it so you can do like interesting covers and mashups. And I didn't even realize that. That's songs, amazing. You're not sampling the actual sure, track. Right, yeah. So shout so out to DistroKid. you get mechanical, because you pay the mechanicals for the cover, obviously clearing a sample would be a different story. Yeah, right, right, because you have to involve the label. Right. And um, I think that's really cool. And then we just did a, just did a cover of, um, uh, Butterfly by Crazy Town with this acapella group that's no came way. out kind of tight. I haven't heard that. I gotta it, hear that. It's twenty years old now this month, so we did it, and it was like you know, I guess you could do covers on YouTube, but DistroKid is really nice with those things like sure. that. So I learned something new, Brian, and I really appreciate you teaching me that. Oh, I learned something new every time I talk to you, Andrew. That's I what's like up. It. Thanks, G. I think this this podcast um, wins an award for not only being one of the longer ones, which is good. We've used a lot of big words. Oh, excellent. Because you're a very well-read, well-educated guy. And <laughs> As are you. Thank you. And I think it's like cool to be able to... Man, I feel like when I talk to you, I'm trying to keep, keep up with you. We're using SAT words. It's good. <laughs> SAT. I've been accused of that. And um, yeah. Sunday, Sunday words. <laughs> this has been good. Do you have any questions for me as we wind down? Always. All right. Well, <laughs> that's what's well, up. I don't know. It's from, uh, what's, let me ask you this. What's been your favorite part of of doing this podcast. Uh, I love that I get to like purposefully um, intentionally sit down with people that I love and care about for like an hour or two, catch up with them. It forces me to have conversations with them and to meet people, but more than meeting people. Like I love that. I made connections with like people I'm a fan of, such as like the, the Roger rabbit dude and like other musicians and stuff. I love, it's more fun being able to like do inside baseball with my friends. Yeah. And I know that people like don't, you know, I don't, I mean, I know my download numbers and I don't know if people listen to the entire things, but I think that's the beauty of the long form media. I, yeah. As a consumer, I love it. And it's funny cause you, yeah, I've even thinking, been thinking as we we're talking like, man, there's kind of a lot of inside baseball here, but <laughs> I was literally thinking of that phrase. Right. Like, is this, is this too inside baseball? But because it's long form and I as a listener that's the stuff I like too especially if if it's something that I'm into I'd much rather hear a long form deep dive than the like eight minute snippet on a big you know what I mean because when people do I'm for whatever reason Amanda Palmer popped into my head and uh because she's very well known and she does uh press when she does her album she does it very like traditionally she does a ton of like Mm. press tours but then I heard her interviewed on uh, the Tim Ferriss show. And mm. it's, it's interesting because his, as a podcast, I don't listen to a ton of it, but the ones that I really enjoyed are those long form conversational deep dives because you get stuff that is not just the like radio snippet. <laughs> like it, it is the inside baseball, but that's what I enjoy. I don't know. No. And that's all in the last third of my podcast is always uh, these pod doing this is always the most fun. Like if you mm-hmm. ask what I like, it's always that because my format is always like, this is my last question. Okay. And that's when my guests, like when I ask that guests are like, okay. And they kind of open up and then you can keep doing this. This is my last question. This is my last question. <laughs> because then you get thrown at this, like, sure. like it's a battle of attrition that they are um, open that's a good word. Yeah. That's maybe that's not like a war, but it's also like battle of attrition. I <laughs> yeah. was going to say it's a very violent way to think about that. No, just one more. Just one more. You're able yeah, I okay. think Okay, Lars, whatever you want. Okay. Yes, Atlantic was rough. Yes, that <laughs> tour was long. <laughs> no, no, but I I I enjoy being able to I I've always wanted 
I always wanted to write a book about all my stories in the independent music game. Sure. And this has become the audiobook of that and mm. made that manifested that dream in an exciting way. Sure. Because it's better than me just talking, it's me t- telling stories telling the stories of my experience with my friends and then learning they're like part of this memoir because it's important, you know. Yeah. And it's, I mean some I don't know anyone with as many great friends and friendships as you and I think that's <laughs> like one of your superpowers is you are able to cultivate and maintain great relationships with people and i've i've felt Thanks, privileged to, to be on the receiving end of of that like you know just at times you'll email me or email me about something or or even just drop a, a dvd or a book in the mail to me like that's just <laughs> amazing like you're you're such a great friend in that way and it's uh i don't know it's inspiring to be a part of that network and to to be on the podcast as well Thanks, Brian. Well, you know, um, that's sweet. And uh, and I think our friendship's special, and it'll always be special. And I cherish the times we get to play together. Like, shout out to Player Omega for, for bringing us together. Yeah. And shout out, last thing I want to say is, I love that you give me a new perspective on things. For example, I mean, that's been the whole theme of this two hours. <laughs> but the, um, the anime stuff you put me on to in 2012 really was inspiring and i really love all like princess mononoke studio ghibli stuff yes movies spirited away and all that stuff Mm. was i always appreciate that you got me into it because i feel like i have a more fluency in that world now that makes me happy that's my jam i uh i've been starting my uh my kids very young on that stuff spirited away i started my daughter when she was like two but she's very into it she wants to watch chihiro and she like at this point she's uh, Spirited Away, My Neighbor Totoro, and Kiki's Delivery Service are three three of hers that are in regular rotation. Was Spirited Away scary for her? Yes. Yeah. But she was into it. It was great. That's kind of cool. Yeah. You're a good dad, Brian. Well, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> um, cool. So check out Canon Eyes, the new I Fight Dragons record, which, what's the street street date? Street date. <laughs> Hit the street. Uh, December 9th. Social media. Yeah. Brian Mazzaferi on Twitter. What? Oh, so I don't really personally do social media anymore. Shout out, wow. Yeah. You just make music. Imagine that. I know. So I try and maintain If I Dragon social media poorly, I might add. I'm not very good at it. Um, so while I may have technically social media presences, I definitely If I Dragons are the place to follow, and I promise nothing. <laughs> if I Dragons on Twitter. Yeah, so at If I Dragons on Twitter. I think iFi Dragons Rock on Instagram. Yeah. And I think slash iFi Dragons on Facebook. Those are the main three where stuff goes up. You are like a, a king of, of uh, in the art game that you make. This is like an anomaly, dude. It's like finding water on Mars. It's like, or Mars has water, right? Or did? Uh, did it? Did it? I did don't it? Know. I don't know. Who carved all those canals, <laughs> Andrew? That's what I want to know. <laughs> they were the guys who visited that that 18-year-old kid in his no, your story no. Um, <laughs> um, well, according to the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs John Carter of Mars book series, there were people on Mars. There are people on Mars. Oh, there are. Yeah. They're just chilling underground. Deja Thoris, you got all kinds of folks. No, they're they're there, just being Martians. Um, big green people. They're still there. Yeah. You so so you don't spend waste your time on social media. You spend your time in the studio and then working a side hustle that allows you to. Be a family man and have a comfortable life. Yeah, That's what's I'm up. Not, uh, there's, I'll t- throw another book at you, um, Digital Minimalism. Okay, writing this down. Yeah, uh, Cal Newport. I've been into that lately. 
And it's just sort of this, the concept is trying to eliminate optional technologies from your life. <laughs> so like, and then really calibrating yourself to what the costs and benefits of various pieces of specifically like mobile technology, like a lot of the stuff that's really become threaded into our life in the past five or 10 years. Threaded in, yeah, right, right. Like, like so, I- <laughs> social media is the, is the biggest example, but like mobile news sites and, and things that are training us in, in very specific ways that are part of the attention economy. So way, ways in which our brain is being fragmented and monetized by large corporations. Sure. And that's why we have in a large part, the political situation we have. One could argue. Yeah. I mean, I think this ne- rise of neo-fascism is no, just <laughs> yeah. another podcast. Oh. Um, Brian, so a more joyful question. Yes. Digital minimalism. I'll check that out. You should. Well, I was watching Nerf Herder set and I was like, oh, I, I should be posting all their hits. I'm like, I'm just going to watch Nerf Herder. I did one, one video towards the end because it was like funny, but like, it's so much more fun just to just to not be like I want to swear messing with your freaking mother freaking phone. Yeah. Because it's I remember a time 2012 I, I don't know. I always go back to this like a glory year but like the whole it's been bad. Most of it's bad. <laughs> Social media is bad. We're all scared, we're all panicking, we're all frustrated. Artists are like f- sweating their numbers and here's Brian over here putting an album out non-conventionally on Patreon with his band, killing it, making songs he loves, and being a fully realized human. <laughs> what? Well, thank you. Here's my last question. What a compliment. What, no, it's just what's up. What's your most valuable Magic the Gathering card? Now or ever? Because I actually have sold all my cards. I'm, I don't own any physical Magic the Gathering cards. Well, that's not true. My father-in-law bought me two Magic the Gathering cards. I have a Chuck Norris card, and I have a Donald Trump Planeswalker card. It's like a political no, they're, parody. Yeah, they're 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 parody cards. Those, um, but can you actually use them? <laughs> I mean, not not in any legal format. <laughs> right. I'm not gonna throw that in my modern deck but, with your sardonic um, sardonic homies. Right. Uh, but so uh, probably the most valuable one I've ever owned was Dark Lotus. Black Lotus. No, uh, oh. I've seen one back in the day. My friend did have one. Is that that's the most valuable one? Yeah, that's like five figures. Um, but I did. Own, Ooh, like low five figures or high? I have, have not kept track of it. Still, that's high. It's it's plenty for a piece of cardboard. But uh, Black Lotus, by the way, is this? Uh, we'll go back to that. Dark Lotus is the card. Black Lotus is ICP side project with Twisted, who is their former label mates. We don't need to get into that right now. So <laughs> that's why I said Black Lotus to the Dark Lotus. Wait, you switched it again. Dark Lotus is the card. Black, Black Lotus, Lotus is, is also the name of MC Frontalot's oh. bass player, who's named after the Magic the Gathering card, which is sense. why I would, he's Black Lotus, and I always would be telling him these facts about ICP's side projects. And by the way, Tales, uh, <laughs> Tales from the Lotus Pod is a really great album by Black Lotus. Dark mm. Lotus. <laughs> oh my God. I'm sorry, Brian. It's all right. So, okay. But to answer your question... <laughs> When I did sell all my cards, I had an, an Underground C third edition that was like a few hundred dollars. Underground C? Yeah. It, it could like tap, the water? It can tap for black or blue mana without any penalties when it enters the battlefield. Very powerful in, in vintage and legacy format. Real quick, how does how do you play Magic the Gathering? <laughs> so you have, no, for real, let's do real quick. You have land that you have untapped power. So you are a planeswalker. Okay. <laughs> Hey. How quick can we go? Because because we 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 could right. probably do it. You, you want the thirty second version? No, let's do the let's five minute it. version. Okay, We're at an hour and forty minutes. 
<laughs> people were really listening to the end so that they could and learn done. to play Magic the Gathering. So you you face off. You are two planeswalkers with uh, with spell books, as okay. it were. It's your deck of cards. You're a mage. You're mage. Well, you're planeswalkers. That's specifically the thing you are because you you're casting these spells. But it, by definition, if I'm I won't interrupt you anymore. Is a planeswalker a type of mage? Yeah. I'll leave that to the uh, locutionists to decide. Okay. All right, the lexi- lexicographers. There we go. That's the pe- the dictionary people, right? Anyway, um, we're a little slap happy at this point. So we're two planeswalkers facing off. We have our spell book, which is our deck of cards. Okay. And you're right. We we uh, take turns putting down land, which uh, by putting down those different types of land, it gives us sources of mana, which is spell power. So then based on tapping those lands, we can once per turn generate this mana, which is the spell power. And then based on the number of lands we've tapped, yep. we have different numbers and colors of mana, spell power, to cast other spells from our hands. So those could be creature spells that we okay. summon. You explain that so well. I'm, I'm, with, I'm still You're with, with you. It? Every awesome. Word. We got creature spells we can summon who are like part of our army. They're going to fight. We've got spells we can cast that are like uh, doing damage so they can directly you can like attack your uh, your opponent with uh-huh. a fireball you throw uh-huh. it at them uh, you can attack their creatures that they've summoned to try and kill them so is black lotus a creature black lotus is actually so powerful because it is an artifact so there's so you got these creatures it's essentially a spell that gives you extra mana and is this kind of is it related to tarot in any way not at all okay <laughs> but it's the idea of these magical cards that no Tarot's no. more predictive. Yeah, tarot's definitely its own totally different thing. But do you think... They are cards. In the South, like, Christian priesters are like, you can't be playing that Magic the Gathering, Harry, Harry Potter, it's just witchcraft. Yes. Like, Dungeons and Dragons had that... For, exactly. But that arguably made it more popular. Anyway, so... <laughs> so, in Magic, you, you get those lands, you're a planeswalker, you cast those spells... And through through casting those spells and attacking your opponent with creatures, mm-hmm. you're trying to get their life total down from twenty to zero before they get yours down from twenty to zero, and that's it. So it's so it's got a role playing element. Yeah, a little bit. Is, are there die or no? So, so there are, but mostly just uh, subject to the cards. Like sometimes a card will have you use a, a counter and things like that, but you're not really rolling dice like Dungeons and Dragons. No. What what what's the physics of the counter? Nothing. It's just to remember. Like sometimes you'll get a you'll get oh. dice where you're like, oh, this this creature got extra power because you cast a spell to make it more powerful. So you put some like dice on it for a counter. Okay, so I get that, it. Remember that there's two extra power on it. And um, so it's really fun. I enjoy it very much. Yes, it's definitely my addictive game. Where <laughs> times when I find myself with a little spare time, I will uh, pull out my laptop and play it online. And then you had a song, you guys had a song in the online version that was like unlockable or something? Yeah, we, we did a song for the end credits of uh, Duels of the Planeswalkers 2014. Imagine. Planeswalkers, Duels of the Planeswalkers, which is a very literal Yep, <laughs> it's what the game is. The game. <laughs> <laughs> but it was the like an Xbox version of the game uh, back in 2014. And we did a song, they had us, commissioned us to do a song for the credits. Called uh, Hero. The, your song's called Hero. Yeah. Is that on Spotify? Uh, it's not. It's on YouTube, I think. That's what's up. So so the title is, if I'm explaining, let me say, I'm going to spit back why I think it's called Magic the Gathering. Okay. So you're- Or Hassle the Dorkening, as uh, <laughs> Frenelot would say. <laughs> yeah. You have, um, you have, that's a, that's a deep nerdcore reference you just dropped. Thank you. So you, so you have- I played Hassle the Dorkening once. <laughs> 
What's the next line? Um, I'm out of line. Yeah. Um, so you have this land, and you have to manifest the power of this land in ways that tap into artifacts, beasts, natural formations, in ways that are able to gather the magic from the land to defeat the mage, but that's maybe not the Plains right Walker. term. Planeswalker. which, but he or she is using ga- magic, so they become a mage because they're able to manifest the magic and gather it. Isn't mage in Final Fantasy? Mage, I mean, mage is like a, it's a term like wizard. So like, yes, they're both in Final Fantasy. <laughs> the Planeswalkers aren't wizards? In a manner of speaking, they're casting spells. <laughs> What's the what's the But sometimes the creatures are wizards too. And let me just trip you up even further. As a pl- wait, you're falling down. As a planeswalker, right. you can cast a spell that summons another planeswalker, and that's a card. So it's like in um it's like in uh Smash Brothers when you get the second ca- creature that you want to hit the thing so he's on your team. It's exactly like that. How f- how long do they play with you? Like how long does do you have your second planeswalker on your team until they die? So you can be firing. So can you have like both team with four planeswalkers? You could. Does that ever happen? Uh, in some formats, I guess it could because there's, there's different formats too. Like I actually mostly play what's called limited. So where you like literally we're, we're just passing around some packs here and, and cracking them open and building decks. Oh, so like cool. you're just kind of making it up on the fly um, and it's, it's a lot of fun. But folks that really are serious about it play constructed where you like spend a ton of time acquiring cards and building the perfect deck. Right. And so you can get really crazy with the types of things because you can end up, you can have four of each type of card in your deck. Right. So you could end up with a crazy ton of planeswalkers or something like that. And then, but then when you like beat someone, you take their cards with you home? No, that was actually in the very original version of the game. That Uh was a rule. It was Uh called anti. Like, so you're, we're facing off and we're supposed to each have a deck and you, put the top card of your deck and then you're playing for it. Like whoever wins the game is supposed to take the other person's card. Oh. But no, that was not a very popular. Why not? Because the cards are expensive and like, sure. you, can, you don't like, especially if you're playing casually, you could flip a card that cost you, that is worth like Black 20 Lotus. bucks. Yeah, Dark Black Lotus. Lotus. Black Lotus. And that's, uh, you know, then somebody else flips a, a generic like <laughs> island or a plain land that's worth nothing. And right. you're just like, I quit. But <laughs> just an, like, take it back. An experienced man wouldn't bring a Black Lotus to a, Gen 1 Magic the Gathering game. What is that f- format called? Oh, Legacy or Vintage. The first realm where you're talking about you can... I'm just <laughs> using random words. That first yeah. version of the game where you can where you gamble for the card. Oh, ante. You wouldn't... A, a veteran Magic the Gathering player wouldn't let his planeswalker bring a <laughs> black... He is the planeswalker. Wouldn't bring a black lotus to... To a gunfight. To a gunfight to an ante version of the game. Did I say that right? More or less. I would agree with you. Yeah. No one played anti anyway. That was one of those rules that was like, it was technically in the rule book, but I don't know anybody that did it. So let's say we were, so we're at, in the hotel right now and here's the vision we're, for you guys to get a picture. Brian and I are sitting on the couch and on the chair in the corner of mm-hmm. their suite where these mics are on a glass table. So we, we have our cards out. Everyone knows how Magic Gathering looks. If they don't, maybe, everyone knows. Maybe they don't. It looks kind of like solitaire, but not, that's bad. It looks nothing like solitaire. Well, you have the cards out. In that they're cards. It looks nothing like, it's like tarot. It looks closer to tarot than to solitaire. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I said. But that. it looks nothing like right. tarot <laughs> okay so you have the cards out and at the end of the game you take your cards home with you it's not like you're th- flipping cards at each other right how do you know whose cards are whose there's no there's no well, mingling of the cards so not really and uh, a lot of times you'll put card sleeves on 
So people have like their Blue own and sleeves red. and or the back of them has like artwork and stuff. And so That's so nerdy. <laughs> That's legit though, right? That's oh, yeah. legit. So you have and you're probably your more expensive cards, the sleeves. That way they don't get better. damaged. Yeah. Well, the sleeves all have to be identical because the backs of the cards have to look the same. So you don't know what your opponent's holding. Right. That's fair. So you know how like with Smash Brothers and like the Amiibos, when you put that on the thing, it gives you extra powers. Like remember on the Wii U? Do you remember if you have like a you know what I'm talking about? I do not. Okay. So if you have, I don't know if this is the same with the Switch. Maybe it is. If you have, and a lot of like our gamer fans who are listening made this far are going to be tweeting us all angry, tweeting me all angry about this. You have like- I'm going to admit the last Smash Brothers I've played is 64. Like, wow. That's, that's my OG. jam. Um, yeah. Um, that's, when I go back, I own a 64, but that's currently the latest game system I own. Well, the Switch one is awesome. I've heard amazing. And I play- I'm very tempted. If I didn't have a kid- you have a I switch would, no that's the thing i would like buy a switch but i have no time to play no. at all right now with two little kids i play on the plane the whole <laughs> flight out here I play nice it. but um so i was thinking about this and then we'll, we'll actually be done with this interview so you have last question <laughs> yeah so you can so you have like what's you remember like back in the day those gumball machines you remember like those little homies those characters there's like do you remember those the I homies so. they were like it was like like characters from the hood and it's like toys of them. That's, I don't know why I used that as an example. Like just a, like a one inch <laughs> Mickey Mouse toy, yeah. but it's Kirby. And so if yep. you're playing as Kirby, you put it on a part on your controller and it gives you extra powers that you can like physically use this toy to help. Oh yeah. It's like yeah, augmented. You know what I'm talking about. I do those. I know those. Okay. Yep. So where the heck are you going with this, Lars? Let me tell you. The kids who, who have the cheddar and the squirrel and the money are going to collect all their favorite Smash Bro Amiibos. Yep. So let's say you have a million dollars and your whole deck is black lo- black lotus black lodi black lotuses. <laughs> let's say you have a very yeah. nice expensive deck. Aren't you just going to dominate every Magic Gathering <laughs> gathering of the gathering <laughs> of the juggalos? <laughs> the gathering of the of the, the juggalo- Magic of Gathering. The magic, uh, Do you know walkers. I did the gathering of juggalos? No way! You played the gathering? Yeah, we played last summer, two summers ago. How was that? Well, I'm alive. No, I went with Mega Ran. We, <laughs> oh, we, we played it at three in the morning. We're supposed to play it at one. And we went on right before ICP. They have a side project Whoa. with the three six mafia guys. No way. It's called the Mafia Six. And they won, went on after us while the sun was rising. And it was a spiritual experience. That's awesome. And um, yeah, that was another kind of gathering. It was yeah. magic in another way. <laughs> it was magic. Uh, but Sorry. to answer your question. And Black Lotus didn't appear because nope. Twisted and ICP are fighting. Dark Neither Lotus. did Dark Lotus. <laughs> um but to answer your question yeah it's that's part of why magic is a super expensive hobby right like especially if you're going to play the older formats like vintage or or legacy and you have to have the cards to play well so on one hand you are limited you can only have four cards of a certain any the same card per deck so you could only ever have four black lotus loti lotus lotuses it's lotuses right lotuses yeah four black lotuses in a deck but but two dark yeah, dark, nope. dark Mutu. <laughs> um, you can only have a certain number of cards, but that said, it can be very expensive to play those formats because you have to have or be able to borrow incredibly expensive pieces of cardboard to have a competitive deck. But like the folks that play it at the pro level, mm-hmm. um, even especially standard is like the most widely played format. It like basically consists of the latest couple of sets that are out. Uh, but those cards, because it's the most widely played format, the ones that are popular for for very popular decks in the current metagame, it can be thousands of dollars to have 
like a competitive standard deck. And it's, Jeez. it's no so joke. That's why when you play on the laptop, it's just, you, are you subscribing or is it free? So it's still money, but I, I mostly play limited. So that's what I'm saying. Like I, I buy into a draft essentially, like I could pay five or 10 bucks and then, um, virtually crack a bunch of packs and build a deck. And uh. so I'm not having to spend thousands of dollars to build a competitive deck. So cracking a pack is opening a new deck. It's uh, some lingo in the Magic Gathering world. You crawl cracking a pack. You crack a pack. It's, you, it's like kind of cracking noise. Yeah. <laughs> Boom! And then you get, and then you might crack a pack, and the lotus might be black. That's whack. <laughs> no, but then you got fifty G's in the sack, the dub sack, <laughs> no, or whatever. Um, and it's just, investment. And you get it back. <laughs> that's. <laughs> you should do an album. That's. Rap, hey! <laughs> I've, um, okay, I fight dragons. Actually, one of my one of the podcasts that I, especially when I'm in phases of of being in, very into magic, there's a long form Magic the Gathering podcast called Limited Resources, mm-hmm. and the first thing they do on every episode is crack a pack and talk about what's in it. Yep. <laughs> what? Um, there must the packs must have different value. Oh yeah, isn't there something like a when, what year did Magic the Gathering start? Twenty five plus years ago at this point. It was, a, it was a long time ago. So I remember in middle school, my, the singer of my first band, this kid, Sean Levin, who was an amazing guy, he would bring, he was the Did dude, it go to 11? <laughs> no, at 11, L-E-V-I-N. Yeah, but. No, he would go to 11, uh, but he didn't, he didn't, he didn't um, play, but his voice went to 11. His voice went to 11. Yeah, and um, that's pretty good. So Sean Levin, that's funny. If he hears this, he'll think that's funny. Um, uh Sean would bring Magic Gathering and we'd play, but there was a thing where like seventh grade, so I'm a few years older than you, but seventh grade would have been 96 for me. Anyway, what's my point? My point is that they'd get, <laughs> they'd get in a fight over the game and like they'd beat each other up and be bracing each other and like we'd steal each other's cards and kids, we would just kind of like, or they would be rambunctious bullies. Mm-hmm. So guess what? Magic the Gathering was banned at our school. No. So that would have been... 96 and it was like the all the rage then but so does that help it's 25 years old does that make sense the chronology I think that makes sense yeah so it was fresh oh yeah it was pretty new at the time so it's a vintage- when i was playing which was a kid which was around that time yeah it was like third edition and you could still get alpha and beta packs even though they were already really expensive at the time okay and so they were but it's like a so when you crack a pack that might devalue like a mint condition 1996 era magic pack. It depends because what depends what's in it. There's actually like whole YouTube channels devoted to uh, how valuable packs are and whether to crack them or not. So once I had a box of oh, of, uh, of a set that had a really valuable planeswalker in it, yeah. and uh, and the box itself, I sold it for 700 bucks because it might have had a really valuable planeswalker in it. And how much are the planeswalkers work? work? Well, the, I forget. There was like a specific Jace or a specific like planeswalker that was really in a, in a format breaking deck at the time. So like, it, it's just crazy. The Why did you think he might have been in there? Because he was in that set and the set wasn't being printed anymore. It was like an older box from a couple of years ago that I just had stashed away. What was the percentage chance that he was in there? 100? I mean, well, so a, a box is like 30... I think it's 30 boosters, which is like 15 cards each. So yeah, there was a decent chance that there would have been one of him in there. I used to um, really, oh God. I used one to, more question. Yeah, I used to love to collect 
um, Simpsons Kid Robots because there was the chase figures. Like the, there was the Hans Molman, which was like one out of two hundred boxes. Nice. There was the zombie ones. I spent a lot on those. Oh yeah, and and a lot, man. I'm talking like like a few G's. Wow, dumb, and I and maybe three G's. And then to get all the stuff, right. I was like, I was gambling to try to get the right ones. I, I when I proposed to my wife, I bought the engagement ring and I sold all my like collector stuff to pay for it. Guess how much I made off of my three G investment, and it wasn't a net positive. Two Gs, seven hundred dollars. Oh, so sometimes it's all good. It was fine, but but my point is that maybe some people spend a lot of Magic the Gathering and like, who decides the value? eBay. Clubs, it's, yeah, it's a market. It's an open market. It's per- perfect capitalism. Has it has it peaked? Uh, you know, that's just a good question. It continues to grow. And actually, like, do you remember Bitcoin when Bitcoin was blowing up uh, a couple years ago? Uh huh. I think this was when it was a couple years ago, and not the the one before that. Um, there was it was like twenty thousand a, a coin. Yeah, and I think I'm trying to remember if this was happening during that time frame or the earlier time frame. Do you remember uh, one of the big things was Mt. Gox, MTGOX? I missed was, this. This was like a, a Bitcoin exchange that oh. they like lost all the money. Right. <laughs> but it's funny because that website had started as a Magic the Gathering, MTGOX, Magic the Gathering online exchange. <laughs> and they ended up in Bitcoin. And it's like, because the thing is, it's big business, man. Like the, the, the companies that buy and sell this stuff, it's like it's a it's a really popular collectibles market with still com- oh very much so and more than Simpsons Kid Robot much more than which Simpsons peaked Kid Robot which peaked in like 2013 I have the receipts <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I, and I don't obviously I don't I'm not privy to the player numbers of Magic as far as like how it's been going but I do know that especially a few years ago when I was more heavily into it like it it was bigger than ever right and, and, and now I'm a little more cash but and it was interesting how on Warp Tour it was. Like, yeah, like officially sponsoring the tour, and it was kind of tight that y'all were out there and you have this genuine love for it. Yeah, it was great. Um, that's what's up. A bunch of folks you would not have expected to just come back with us and sling spells. That's what's up. Um, and then a bunch of people would walk by and be like, What are you guys doing? Nerds. Kevin's once said he felt like punk died the year everyone was playing Harry Potter Quidditch backstage, <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of tight. You could say nerd culture and punk aren't exclusive, yeah. I mean, the 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 funny thing uh about that year so warped tour 2014 we we'd done it in a van in 2012 so we didn't get to hang out much we were just like Mm. driving all the time and you know being not sleeping but uh in 2014 we split a bus with another band and so we got to hang out and it was just funny because so what i did all the time was play magic the gathering and then there was another group of people that would play ultimate werewolf there was a, a guy that would facilitate and we would have like games of 20 or 30 people playing ultimate werewolf and it was the nerdiest stuff, but it was awesome. Yeah, it is. Awesome. It was funny. So, like Chad, uh, who was a drummer in our band, was like, "Shout out to Chad!" Yep, shout out to Chad. <laughs> uh, was blown away that like I, who am not like the most social guy in the band at all, I tend to be like pretty introverted in general. But he's like, thought it was hilarious that I had I was like <laughs> making the most friends on Warp Tour by playing Magic: The Gathering and Ultimate Werewolf. You're just too <laughs> too cool for school, um, Brian. Who has the most valuable Magic the Gathering collection in the world? Probably one of the stores, like, I don't know, Channel Fireball, or there's a bunch of, like, big stores that, it's hard to call it a collection, but I'm sure their inventory is worth, you know, hundred thousands. It's insured for me, a lot. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. Hopefully, if they're smart. 
Interesting, interesting. And, and so, all right, well, I learned a lot about Magic the Gathering. See, because like, sometimes I feel embarrassed to ask these questions. And I don't know anyone who really who loves as much as you do, other than Black Lotus. Dark Lotus? Oh, no, wait. <laughs> Dark Lotus is ICP. Yeah. Black Lotus. Black is Lotus the- is Brandon Patton, and he loves magic. Nice. One time, um, Drew Carson, who is now Jennifer Carson, who was um, worked with Band Happy on Warp Tour, mm-hmm. she, back then when he, tried to teach me it one night, and I could not get it. I couldn't get it's it. It's hard to pick up, like, fast. I was so distracted, and she was not enjoying that I was so distracted. It's uh, And I felt bad. I just couldn't follow. <laughs> you have to commit to uh, to actually wanting to pick it up, for sure. It's like a two-hour podcast with your boy, MC Lars. This has been fun. I mean, we've spent the past, like, half hour just talking about Magic the <laughs> See, Gathering. That's what I'm saying. People the, are probably, like, falling off last much earlier. 25% is always the best, and I feel like... What? This then, is the best. No, this is no, the goal? it's always, it's always. No, it's not the best. It's always like, like the um, surprising part. I think okay. the, the best part of it was that I know you in life. Okay, oh. goodbye. Hey, oh, let's let's end with. Is there a song from um, from Ken and I's? Do you want to play? Like, sure. What maybe? What what what's the song you want to play and talk about? I don't mean to put you on the spot. No, no, no. It's uh, why don't we do? Uh, oh, the places you'll go kind of fits a lot of the things we're talking about. Uh, I wrote this one about, uh, my daughter and just, you know, when she was, especially a baby, the like things that go through your head when you're just looking at this little like helpless creature that is dependent on you for everything. But yet you are, you have all these hopes and dreams that for them, but they're not your hopes and dreams. You just want them to, to, to succeed and be all these things so uh, yeah i mean that's what it's about that's cool that's cool the places you'll go but i fight dragons from ken and eyes available depending on when this airs now or soon planeswalker records is that the label no it's not oh. <laughs> brought to you by dark lotus you uh, you know Collabo. One, one day i'm gonna send you Feet a dark lotus i'm gonna send you a dark lotus song that i used as an inspiration for my song super scope hmm. the chorus I use the melody and cadence as an interpolation tribute to my favorite Dark Lotus song. That's a whole nother story. Mm. Last question. <laughs> Last question. <laughs> no, are, what, how do you feel like excited to do a, another record soon or are you kind of chill now that you have a record out? Well, not- I think we got, yeah, I want to, I want to get this officially out. So this is not fully out. We're playing a release show because we don't play that much these days. It's like a lot of work for us to get that stuff together. Um, but I'm excited for it to be fully out and, and in the world for sure. And then shorter time between the next two records. I or? hope so. Yeah, not another five years. You mean? Well, <laughs> well I don't the, know. The, but... the fact that the Patreon is there and it's like we've done one, but we could just start doing another one. I think that's exciting to me. And like, I would start writing songs again, and we'll kind of see. I hopefully more than hopefully less than five years before the next record. So maybe we can do a. I ask that we can do a part two when that next one's done. Part two. I'm in. Tight. Peace. What can I tell you of the world When I know I've still got so much to learn How will I keep you safe? How will you find your place? What can I tell you of the world? I want you to have it all Want you to trust yourself and fear no fall Want you to turn out to be so
so much better than me. I want you to have it all. Oh, the places you'll go with your eyes so wide, with your heart in your hands and your sword at your side. Oh, the mountains you'll move, oh, the tears you'll cry, oh, the places you'll go. You'll be safe I can't promise you won't lose your way But I promise you now You'll get through it somehow And you'll laugh about today I can offer you this song For you to listen to when things go Places you go with your eyes so wide, with your heart in your hand, and your sword at your side. Oh, the mountains you move, oh, the tears you cry, oh, the places you go. What a great guy. Thank you very much, Brian. Uh, I am going to play right now the Patreon, the Patreon Larshan, Larshan of, the, of week. the week. This week we have a special caller from West Virginia who heard download this song because she saw it on a torrent site, a LimeWire site back in the day. Jesse from West Virginia calls and tells her story. So uh, take it away, Jesse. Hi, Lars. My name is Jesse. And I am from West Virginia, but I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. So back when I lived in West Virginia, I didn't have a whole lot of access to music. The first time I heard you was download this song because I was just browsing through LimeWire, different genres, looking for things to download. And the title said download this song. And so I did. And I have been a huge fan ever since. Because I live in the middle of nowhere in West Virginia, I didn't get to see you in person for a very long time. But a friend of mine went to a show, I think in 2009, maybe, 
and stood in line and called me so that I could talk to you on the phone. And you were so kind and um, understanding of people, like, being fans and not being able to be there in person. Um, and it was really wonderful and sweet. And so now that I live in Charlotte, I can see you every time you come through town, which I do. Um, and every every show is beautiful, and I appreciate uh all the things that you do education-wise and also am super stoked about these new Marvel songs. Thank you. Um, Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Amazing. That's very kind, and thank you very much for your support and the kind words. We have a special guest next week, Ultra Kleistron. He is a rapper and producer who lives in Canada, originally from the U.S. Um, He's married to Nurse Hella, which some of you might remember from back in the day, the old Nerdcore documentaries. We talk about how he balances his career in tech with his incredibly prolific output of music. So Carl Olson, Ultra Kleistron, next week. Thank you all for listening, and I hope to see you at one of the upcoming shows. Also, I want to announce I'm going on tour with Schaefer the Dark Lord in February in, in the U.S. and some other acts, so stay tuned for that. Uh, I'm still doing my Pay What You Want for the MC Lars back catalog, music.mclars.com. And check out the new album, Humble Bundle. It's actually an EP that will be on Spotify sometime soon. Some of the music videos are on my channel, mclars.tv. And that's it. And that's all, man. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye.